This is Karen Hunter, and welcome to The Hub. Greetings. Uh, good everything, Nubians. How, how art thou? How art thou, Dr. Carr? Uh, doing well, doing well. How are you, Professor Hunter? I am. You know, it's uh, got, up and, got up and out. I am. And so we are as a result of all of the I am that pours yeah. into us. So, yeah, I'm, I'm grateful is what you I am. You don't miss that ritual. How's the weather? It's cold today, but that's good. And it's going is good. In the twenties, I was like, "Okay, all right, dear, I see you, I see y'all, squirrels. This is normal." For they, they have, they got an article in, in today's Financial Times: North America exposed to unseasonal temperatures, while parts of South America extreme suffer extreme heat. And they're showing the kind of uh, what is here, not the people. They're showing the kind of uh, you see the the heat signatures there, and uh, we should be afraid. We should be very afraid. But, yeah. uh, but but yeah, so it's good that it's cold today. <laughs> yeah, I was like, this is normal. I got a coat on. Yesterday I walked out with a coat. I was like, let me chop my coat off. I could go out with a hoodie in February. What's going exactly. on? Yeah. Exactly. And this is uh President's Day weekend, huh? In I the United know. States. Okay, all right. You know, I don't know about you, but um I I do not. I don't care about any of these holidays. Now. Oh no, no, they're days off, and I don't think most of us do. But yeah, I mean, just just doing due diligence in the context of the rhythms, because people, as the society tries to pull us back into what was going on before COVID, is hell bent on that. And you know, part of this, oh, three day weekend. Yeah, yesterday it was a seven day weekend. And people worked and did what they could from home, but you just want to keep trying to press this knowledge. Well, we see you, we see you, but we're not going back, and neither are you. <laughs> so yeah, wa- Washington's birthday in eighteen hundred, and then they added Lincoln somewhere around the nineteen sixties, I think, to reinforce this narrative that fractures. But most people don't know. Most people don't know. They just know that they may or may not have to go to work on Monday. Right. And what is work? So you know, I'm, I will be on the air on Monday. No question. What I do is not work for me. Dr. Daniel Black will be joining me. Our brother, yes. Uh, and you know, I was processing and thinking about this week. Uh, I had a really amazing week of interviews with a lot of different people, and you know, I'm like, this is what we should be doing. And then you know, yesterday, Foolish's Friday, I'm you know having <laughs> conversations. Uh, about you know what does it mean to be uh, alpha male and I was like where did this like like the language that we use to describe ourselves you know brother called up I'm a man's man and I was like what does that mean man's man who who's based on what 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 That's what's informing you of this you know and I'm raising my son to be a man's man I was like ah how does that who uh, uh that actually is probably <laughs> The James in the James Brown, the book of Brown. Remember, James said, I'm a man, I'm the son of a man. <laughs> so, I mean, the whole idea that there are certain expectations that are passed down, but each generation receives from the previous generation instructions based on what that generation received. And, and it's it is it is interesting, isn't it? So, did he define ultimately what a man's man was? Yeah, I mean, he was basically because we were talking about men that wear pearls, women that wear dresses, and I was like. You know, at the end of the day, you know, why do we have separate fingerprints if people are not supposed to show up in the world however they feel like they need to show up? Now, I do think that there are trends that are foisted upon us by marketing, media, et cetera. 
But having people wake up and feel like they want to present in the world should be their prerogative or else we're taking away people's freedoms. And is that what we want to put people in bondage? Is that our goal is to put people in bondage so we can feel comfortable? Because that's really the world that we live in. And it it was sparked from a a discussion about Skip Bayless, uh, that wretched um, troll. (laughs) who makes a lot of money sitting across from black men uh, saying racist and horrible things. But he actually hit on the broken clock uh, because he said the reason why there are not uh, many black coaches in the NFL is because the white owners, because of the relationship between owner and coach is so intimate that they don't want their wives to sit across from these, basically these black bucks, these these, uh, superhuman coaches. And, you know, it's like... The, the tropes and that made me think about, is that the core problem from Birth of a Nation, D.W. Griffith, all the way down is this fear that somehow Mandingo, Ken Norton, that our women are going to, not that you're going to, the women are going to be raped because y'all know, y'all the rapists, right? Y'all know that as I sit here with my coffee au lait, skin tone. Um, you know you're the rapist, so you always project. That's what people do. You project onto others what is actually in your spirit, but that you can't compete so therefore you're going to demonize, demoralize, dehumanize, you're going to put these tropes out there and make them the boogeyman and even codified into law. No, no, no. Come on through John, J- Jack Johnson. You will not, you will get arrested for the man act. And we're going to have, uh, you know, before loving versus Virginia, all manner of ways that we're going to separate. Oh, this marijuana, this jazz is going to make her women want no, you brought people here. You breeded people. You, you know, you brought superhuman people here because you couldn't clear the land and do all of the things. You brought people here with particular skills and ingenuity and brilliance and then got mad when they wouldn't leave, <laughs> tried to ship them back. <laughs> we're like, right. no, no, we, we built this, we're staying. And then started doing amazing things. And so it's like, okay, we're going to torture, we're going to lynch, we're going to burn down whole cities, we're going to demonize, incarcerate. And, uh, and, it, it, and this has been the constant drumbeat all the way through. And then we participate. Well, that's what I'm saying, because last I checked, uh, somebody was sitting across from uh, Mr. Bayless uh, interjecting periodically with skip, skip, skip. You get away with that, skip. Skip, you get away with that, skip. So what you saying, skip? <laughs> well, what I'm saying is that uh, I get to talk like that because I'm in the owner's box. What were they They talking about Eric being me, I assume? Yes. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Who, who, there wouldn't have been a Super Bowl victory for Kansas City that I could give a damn about. But if not this man and his well, offense. Andy Reid is the genius, right? I mean, Eric Bieniemy's just uh, somebody to bounce ideas off before he, uh, before Reid uh, does his genius, right? I mean, I lived in Philly all those years. Andy Reid was such a genius and won the Super Bowl by you no, know, no time. Anyway, anyway, but Bieniemy. So <laughs> why did Bieniemy? Uh, why did he leave? Why? How did he make that lateral move and come to the uh, to the Redskins? I'm just gonna call it the way that Negroes continue to wear those and uh, indigenous people on their foreheads around here. I don't think they'll ever accept the commanders. Uh, you know, and, and mental slavery is real. Why did he do that? Do you think? Uh, coin. No, I, I was, I was saying, um, you know, commerce, commerce, acceptance, you know, all the things we've been conditioned, please just love me. Please just oh, more money. Okay. That's and, and you, you rationalize it for my family, for my legacy. You know, and it, there's some validity to that. Yeah, we all need to eat and have, you know, make sure our people are good. We all need all of those things, which is why there is a preponderance of us in these spaces uh, operating against our own very interests 
on all levels, not just uh, on the sports field, in academia, you know, uh, in publishing, in business, in corporations, in tech. You know, we we bring genius to all the things. I was today's the birthday of an architect, and I was thinking about all of the things he built, and I can't remember his name now because I was like doing a little research. And I was like, this brother helped build so many things. He gets no credit for it. I think about all of the things done uh, by us, not even quietly, just, hey, let me take that because we couldn't hold patents for a while. Mm-hmm. Oh, is it uh, it's Paul Revere Williams? Yes, Paul Re- And I thought that was strange. Like, um, and We talked about Paul Revere Williams. Yeah. In fact, there's been a, I got that book around here somewhere. There have been several good books on the history of Black architects, but there's one in particular that has Williams's portfolios. He did a lot of. In fact, Williams designed the uh, the mutual insurance life insurance building out there in L.A. That's the one that had a lot of Charles White's work in it. That's why I remember that. I'm looking around. Yeah, the whole thing on Charles White. That's right. And, and all that's all. But those of you not yet in narrative, that's all in the archive. We talked extensively about Paul Williams. Paul Revere Williams. Absolutely. Today yeah. is his birthday. Okay. Born today in Los Angeles, uh, yeah. 94. You know, so I was just thinking about all of the things done that, you know, and, and as they erase and take books out of the libraries and out of the schools and as that, you know, that cosplaying, what do you call them, Pufferfish? And, and Pufferfish, my oh, man. I, 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 DeSantis, I just, I, I like him more and more every day. Well, he's tapping into something that people absolutely want. And I'm like, okay. And now Nikki Haley, you know, who's like, and, and when tragedy hits South Carolina, Nimrata Haley, right? Huh? Nimrata. Nimrata Nikki. Well, her middle name is actually Nikki. So okay, that's good. Using her middle name, no question, no question. Fair. Her parents, her parents aspired, uh, aspirational white. Yeah. She yeah. got there. She white adjacent. No. Yeah. Question. Yes, but she's taking credit for taking down the flag and all these things. I was like, wow, this is why narrative and and having our own there and being sure to you know be alive and tell the truth always and don't let people get away with uh, reframing because this is how we got here. People reframed history, shoved it in some books for, out of Texas, shoved them into our children's mind, into our minds, our parents' parents, and then we regurgitated it, got AIDS for regurgitating these lies, right? And then got passed along, went to college regurgitating lies. Hey, good, 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 good. Nice, nice, good Negroes regurgitate these lies. And then here we are. And then we get mad when we come in class with Carl, you're like, why not? Hey, so someone I've been hoodwinked and bamboozled out of Run them up. Oh. I tell you what, the nation of Islam had over whatever they are or aren't, they have come up with some beautiful friend. When he say run them up, let astray. <laughs> Those are my two things. Hoodwinked and bamboozled is, is pretty good, but run them up. <laughs> Meaning what you just out here running. Just run them up. Just out here, you know, running over stuff, getting run over, led astray. And now you are down this path, realize how the hell did I get? But education is that. I mean, education has a socializing function, and uh, but you said something as we were going uh, going back and forth yesterday. Um, you called it a mess. I thought that was so appropriate. There's a reason for that. I talk about that. <laughs> what did you, <laughs> I need to pull it up. Where did I pull it? What did you say? You said. No, I was just saying. I was. I, I try to tamper my frustration. You know. Because sometimes you just feel like you're yelling into the void. Like, sure. come on, come on, let's get up, wake yeah. up. 
you know, and you just feel so frustrated because you, you know, you, you hear Whoopi Goldberg on a, on a thing and you think you should, she should know better than to open her mouth and put her whole brain on display. You hear lemon and you're like, why does he have the platform when clearly he doesn't read a single book and just be saying stuff. And it's like, how, how are these people are representatives on the, on the TV? They get, they get pushed because you know they have some talent, but all, but most importantly, they serve the purpose of whoever advances them on those platforms. And so uh, it's so funny. Um, Frank Thomas, the very highly influential black and white spaces, uh, never got a chance to meet Frank Thomas, and not a lot of people who know him know. But this is his. You know, he made transition uh, recently, uh, a couple years ago. And this is his biography just came out, his autobiography, his memoir called An Unplanned Life, Franklin A. Thomas. Um, remember, we talked about Frank Thomas when we were talking about Gloria Steinem and we were talking about um, Vernon Jordan and some other folks. Vernon Jordan and he were very, very good friends. Um, this is the brother who uh, is credited with rescuing, quote unquote, the Ford Foundation. Brooklyn guy, Bed-Stuy, eventually uh, was the head of the Bedford Stuyvesant Restoration Corporation in the late 60s, uh, all the time, very good friends with and, and 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 commiserated with Bobby Kennedy and Lyndon Johnson and so many others. Of course, as we talked about it, if you all go back into the archive, we talked about how Kennedy was stabbing him in the back, though, in terms of talking about him and what he could and couldn't do. But I'm, I'm only bringing up Franklin Thomas in a moment, Prof, because you you asked the question, how, how, do, how do certain folk get platforms? And by platform, I mean, I'm using the current language of social media. I mean, obviously, we're in platform. We're in a platform that has been constructed specifically for us and supported by us and is growing by leaps and bounds, even as thousands of folks are already here this morning in the narrative, in Nubia, rather. The, uh, yeah, I'm actually creating an overflow room right now. Already, huh? Okay, see? And there we are. And, of course, thousands more will join us over the arc of today and through the next week in, in the YouTube space. I saw the... Uh, the CEO of YouTube is stepping down. This is the lady who allowed the guys to come over to her house and start Googling her. Oh, here she is. YouTube head. YouTube head Wojcicki to step down after overseeing transformation. YouTube chief executive Susan Wojcicki is stepping down after overseeing the video hosting site's growth into an entertainment colossus over nearly a decade. Um, well, Jixiki, who joined Google in 1999 as its 16th employee, said in a memo, she has, quote, decided to step back from my role as head of YouTube and start a new chapter, focus on my family, health, and personal projects I'm passionate about. Uh, Google bought YouTube for $1.65 billion in 2006. Now, remember, YouTube is only what 24 years old not even quite a quarter century as she says she joined in 1999 as the 16th employee and uh google bought youtube for a billion six five 1.65 billion in 2006 that's pretty good in 2022 the video sites advertising platform generated 29.2 billion dollars representing about 10 percent of google parents al parent alphabet's revenue but this, I'll, I'll end with this. Uh, Wogiti, 54, had been a long-term fixture at the company, having rented out her garage to Google's two founders, Larry Page and Sergey Brin, in 
eight. Now, Frank Thomas, who grew up in a in a loving community, not much money, but a lot of love in Brooklyn, uh, ended up going to Columbia, where he set records as a basketball player, but more importantly, used that opportunity to uh, advance himself intellectually by all accounts, brilliant brother, who then by the mid 1960s found himself in the right plan right place at the right time hence an unplanned life who found himself caught up in first attempts of new york city government to manage these poor and black and brown people uh to tamp down violence and the rising tide of dissatisfaction and he was the right man at the right time in the right place with some ideas and some talent and some demeanor they always talk about how cool he was how calm he was and that allowed him to be in rooms where there were no non-whites and very few, if any, women. And he was able to parlay that into some resources for black and brown communities, particularly the Bed-Stuyvesant uh, uh, Corporation, uh, Bed-Stuyvesant Restoration Corporation, which was a community development organization. But he's pumping resources into Brooklyn at a time when... Uh, this is when the black power movement is uh, really rising. And this is this parallels the rise of, for example, the East. The East, uh, of course, which was founded by black folk in Brooklyn, uh, black educators like Jitu Weusi, Baba Jitu, who is an ancestor now, who, who was known as uh, Les Campbell when he was a school teacher in Bed-Stuy. They talked about community control there in Brooklyn of their schools and African, African-American culture and history in the curriculum and local control of the communities. Well, here's Frank Thomas behind the veil with the big money white boys, the politicians, the millionaires, the billionaires, the, the federal, the local and the global capital, the resources to not work in tandem with the folk who started the East, but certainly enable some space for them to continue to do their work independent of that. But of course that allows him, Frank Thomas that is, to be identified as someone who might be able to be trusted so people are being vetted. You ask about a Don Lemon or you ask about a Whoopi Goldberg, uh, no different than a Frank Thomas or uh, a Vernon Jordan or others who are identified by a structure that says the people that they come from and however you want to define that demographically, economically, the people that they come from pose a threat to the hierarchy that we have. So we need some pressure valves in place to be able to maintain this hierarchy. And we'll make some concessions, but we're certainly not gonna renegotiate the terms of the structure. We're gonna continue to have this social structure and we just can't, can't keep doing what we've been doing. And of course the safety valves that they identify to help them in this process, uh, they have their own ideas because these are human beings. Remember Don Lemon, uh, whatever his recent, most recent uh, uh, misstatements about Nikki Haley and you know whether she's past her prime, so to speak, and then everybody jumps down on the uh, the question of gender and perhaps ignores the question that Nikki Haley is a reliable white nationalist. But, you know, we'll get to that perhaps in a moment. But that is that Don Lemon isn't the same Don Lemon of 20 years ago when he was on the air in Philadelphia or right before that. And then before he goes to CNN, even the long time he was at CNN when he was uh, those people who watch cable news network of African descent one of our favorite slapping around bags because he would often say anti-black things. And then, you know, he had his come to the insurrections moment and uh, got black as hell there for a little while. And it's kind of evened out. So, but the point is that 
that vetting comes with its own back and forth, its own positioning and repositioning. But what is always present is the social structure, which has its own contradictions, its own battles, its own internal logics. At the same time, what it's not going to do is in this moment engender its engender any or incorporate which would mean to engender in some ways its own demise so it's always picking winners and losers losers to quote unquote platform and uh i mean it, i find this very fascinating because for example there there's a whole conversation in this memoir about apartheid because franklin thomas was eventually tapped to head to lead the ford foundation for his diplomatic skills, for his insight and vision, for his intelligence, for his demeanor. And those skills he brought to the table, those who work at the Ford, Ford Foundation, including Darren Walker, the brother who uh, runs the Ford Foundation now, say, you know, Frank Thomas saved the Ford Foundation. The Ford Foundation gives out billions of dollars. Well, they're not giving money away. They're investing because they have a vision of how the world should work. These foundations are incredibly important in shaping the lives of many people beyond their money, but their money allows them to shape lives. And of course, the Ford Foundation, like many foundations, is premised, not premised, is founded on ruthless capitalism. They've got money to give away. They have their seed money to give away because of the work of, uh, of course, the Ford family, Henry Ford in particular. But um, yeah, Thomas, is, Thomas goes to South Africa during apartheid. Mandela's in jail. The African National Congress is operating in exile. They have been banned. And it is Frank Thomas who convenes a secret meeting in New York with the uh, with some of the anti with some of the uh, South Africans who are resisting apartheid. The name that comes immediately to mind is a brother who they snuck out of the country when he was a child. Dabo and Becky, who ends up being the president of South Africa after Nelson Mandela, because when they snuck Dabo and Becky out, in fact, they snuck him out. Kenneth Kaunda who I've heard, who I heard that story from mouth to ear in South Africa one time, you know, Kaunda, who ended up being leader of Namibia, uh, Zambia, not Namibia, Zambia. Uh, Kaunda gets him out. Dabo was a child. His daddy, Govan and Becky, is locked up with Nelson Mandela on Robben Island. And Dabo and Becky is raised in, in, in Europe, England in particular, but and Becky is at that table in New York. He can't go home, but he's a grown man now, and he's in there negotiating with other South Africans against and ultimately under the wise guiding hand of Frank Thomas and others with the Broderbond. And some of y'all know something about South Africa. You know, the Broderbond are the people who were running the government and ran it for decades. This is the Afrikaners. This is the brain trust. You know, the university with which they are most readily identified in South Africa is Stellenbosch. You know, some people think of that as the academic heart of apartheid, but the heart of how they ruled that country in white nationalism in the 20th century is the Broderbond. And, you know, what you see is with Frank Thomas and the resources of the Ford Foundation and his connections in government and in private equity and, and, in, and in finance and, and international politics, he got the juice to convene them. And they sit around that table. And not too long after, I think it was 1986, not too long after that, around 1990, 91, de who becomes the president of South Africa, who was in the Broderbond, Dutch Reformed Church is the polite way to say what his ties were, but Broderbond, Afrikaner, de announces in the legislature of South Africa that Nelson Mandela will be given his unconditional release. And you see the hardcore white nationalists in the Congress 
of South Africa, South African legislature, parliament, you see them get up and walk out as the clerk is talking. But what they probably knew, but some of them didn't know, probably the Marjorie, the equivalents of the Marjorie Taylor Greens in that parliament at the time, is that they made that deal in New York City. Not New York City, upstate New York, actually. They made that deal in New York, and Frank Thomas was sitting at the head of the table. A black man, him and Vernon Jordan, traveled together to South Africa during apartheid. They negotiating. The question you got to ask yourself is, is that a good thing? Well, as John Clark said, in some stories, it ain't no good guys. And in some stories, maybe there aren't any bad guys either. They're in the room, but they're in the room because they've been vetted to be in the room. And you need a pressure valve. I mean, you can't keep running this. So while they're having a conversation, they have no doubt. The equivalents of the Bobby Kennedys of the 1980s were also saying to these people in the Broderbond, they're, they're friends. Well, they believe that, you know, whiteness should rule forever. Look, you're going to have to give those Negroes to vote at some time, but you can keep the banks and the corporations. And you should also, before you give them the keys, get rid of all the nuclear weapons. So we'll, we'll figure all this out. Now, let's bring Frank in here so that he can run it or at least, you know, think he's running. In fact, let's bring him in for the meeting before the meeting. This is the meeting before the meeting before the meeting. But now we're going to bring him into the meeting before the meeting so that he can feel good about being kind of at the center of this conversation. And then, of course, we receive all this in the history books as if this is black progress. So we see whether it be Whoopi Goldberg, whether it be Frank Thomas and Vernon Jordan, whether it be Don Lemon. Ultimately, spaces that are created for other purposes than our liberation, collective liberation, as people of African descent, uh, as poor people, as oppressed people, as people who are not at the top of that hierarchy, as people who don't buy into that hierarchy. Well, you know, the only consideration of factoring us in is how to keep those people in line to keep this thing going. What is this thing? The modern world system, the modern world system. Um, here we are, week three of so-called Black History Month here in the United States of America. And we started on our journey two Saturdays ago thinking about the Advanced Placement Course curriculum as, a, as an opportunity, a point of entry to talk about curriculum and education. And Prof, I think you've opened this up beautifully this morning by reminding us that what we learn and how we are educated isn't just a matter of facts and opinion and ideas, it's a matter of socialization. And uh, in a moment, we're gonna reflect on some words from someone else whose birthday is today, who you reminded me, so Bernie, of course, sent me to the archive to look uh, about, you know, reread some of her work. And we'll come to her in a second. I wanna evoke someone whose birthday just passed as, as the initial point of entry, and that's Jacob Carruthers. Uh, today is the 18th annual, actually, Jacob Carruthers Conference in Chicago. It's hybrid. So they go, they're there in person, folks in the Comedic Institute. Shout out to all my comrades and colleagues and elders uh, in the Comedic Institute. I'm proud to be a member of KI. And they're there in person at the Center for Inner City Studies in, in, in Chicago, the Jacob Carruthers Center for Inner City Studies. And then there's hybrid. Uh, we'll, those of us who are not there physically will be pretend, um, presenting virtually. In fact, uh, I'm going to give a talk later on this afternoon, Advanced Placement, the Intellectual Warfare and the College Board's AP African-American Studies course. And I'm going to open up with a quote from Jacob Carruthers, whose birthday, February 15th, 1930. Good African by way of Texas. And Dr. Carruthers gave a talk in Cleveland back in November 1993. And this is what he says now. He says, 
we have coming not on the scene. He says we haven't we have coming now on the scene a new crop of Afro-American, as they call themselves, and continental African intellectuals who are now challenging our victorious march toward the restoration of African civilization as necessary foundation for our African future. We need to address this rising tide of anti-Africanism among these so-called Afro-Americans. He's talking about this particular group of people who have been, to use the parlance of today, 30 years after he gave his talk, almost platformed. Now, this is a platform, but he's going to let me read the next sentence, a couple of sentences, and, and I'll go to, to, to make the distinction. He says, because they are some people who have a whole lot of resources at their disposal. They have the whole European intellectual establishment behind them. They have a whole lot of cash behind them. They have access to the New York Times, the Washington Post, and all of the publishing houses and all of the TV stations. And so we have to deal with them as they try to communicate to our people. They are also trying to fabricate an intellectual history that never existed and are trying to initiate an African future that can never come into existence. And well, hopefully, God forbid that it should come into existence. Dr. Carruthers says, finally says they are held by the European patrons and mentors as preeminent in fields of African and African-American philosophy and literature. So let us deal with a context under which we can deal with them. This is part of what Dr. Carruthers might call the intellectual civil war. And it's a harsh term. And, you know, I, at first it kind of falls kind of harshly on the ear. I think, you know, one way perhaps of thinking about that is that within our, again, we're always having these conversations with our Africana studies conceptual category framework in mind, because this is Africana studies space we're in. Footnote. Thanks, everybody. This Monday night. It's just getting better and better and better. Last Monday when we were in frame of question four, just, just remarkable. Maybe I'll say a few more things about that in a minute. But in this Africana States conceptual framework, Dr. Corrales is talking about the impact of a social structure that curates how it want, how it tries to influence communities it wants to keep in the formation that, that are currently in. So you're going to pick out some black people, pick out some brown people, pick out some non-white people, pick out some progressive white people, pick out some liberal white people, pick out some ultra-conservative white people. And it, uh, the whole while you know that this is all designed with one goal in mind, to maintain the formation that is in place. No matter what individuals who are within that formation at the top of it, the hierarchy, they may disagree with each other because these aren't all people who are thinking the same. Rupert Murdoch is not the same as the head of the college board. The head of the college board and Rupert Murdoch are not the same as the governor of Florida. The governor of Florida is not the same as the people who are reaping in record profits at the oil companies. And I thought I saw in today's New York Times, actually, uh, the railroad people. Last month, as Norfolk Southern, one of the largest railroads in North America, reported record operating profits, Alan H. Shaw, its chief executive, told shareholders that the company's service was, quote, at its best in that has been in more than two years. About a week later, one of the company's freight trains derailed in East Palestine, Ohio, forcing a controlled burn of toxic chemicals and the evacuation of hundreds of residents. Another Norfolk Southern train came off the rails near Detroit on Thursday. Anyway, not the same as the governor of Florida or the uh, Rupert Murdoch who runs Fox and, and, and his corporation or uh, the head of the college board. They all aren't the same. But one thing they will have some consensus on is they kind of like where they are in the hierarchy and they want to maintain it. Although they're going to have arguments over 
what that maintaining looks like. And part of that maintaining means recruiting into whatever formations they have in terms of managing themselves. Some people who may not look like them, who may not have their background, who may not be from the same experiences them because they've got to create some pressure valves. Why? Because the rest of us who suffer from the hierarchy in various and sundry ways, whether you be a poor white in East Palestine who voted for Trump twice and is now, why, why, as these chemicals enter your nostril and you begin to have an experience that is closer to the, the centuries long now experience of the Africans in Africatown, Mobile, Alabama, with the paper plant where everything stinks in that section of Mobile and people want to know why. It's why, because you put toxic chemical plant in this way. But now these people in East Palestine, different color, different region, different background, similar similar experience in terms of being punished by these people at the top of this hierarchy. But for some reason, it's hard to get those people together. Why? Because what has been platformed are people who keep them apart, whether it be the liars in Fox News and the recent news that broke in the last couple of days that these people who are talking heads to duping these people in East Palestine and other places who watch them, who knew that Donald Trump was talking crazy, but still didn't matter. He, all of them been deposed now. And when any of you sue somebody and depositions come and then discovery comes, all the documents come out, the email to the text messages. And now it's coming out that Hannity and and uh, little, little uh, what's the little bow tie with? I'm not even going to say his name. I remember it, but why would I say it? Um, talking to each other, saying, you know, you're about to mess up our money. You're about to mess up the stock options. I'm saying all that as a as a background and preface to this. What Dr. Carruthers, Jacob Carruthers, born in 1930 on February 15th, birthday last week, was saying, and what will be one of the things we'll be talking about at the Carruthers Conference today uh, in Chicago, is that people are recruited into this who come from our communities not because they're bad people or they don't want the best for our communities. In fact, often quite the opposite, but because it serves that social structure, it maintains it. It maintains it. And as it maintains that social structure, uh, Professor Hunter, as we, we were, you know, chasing back for last night, you, you evoked our consistent theme, which is, of course, pouring the clean glasses of water. That's what we do. This last 15 minutes or so kind of talking about this social structure, it's necessary, but not only is it not sufficient, it is not the center of our work. We engage in an analysis of in understanding and learning about the social structures that we're in as a necessary condition because we are human in the world and uh, race is not real and we have to get together as a species before the ball resets as we see with these temperatures around the world. So we do that because we have to, but we come out of unique human experiences, all the members of the human families. I would not agree with Professor Henry Gates, who uh, in a short interview he gave a little while ago, talking about the 1960s and 70s and saying that there were people of African descent who were passing judgment on other people because they didn't have on dashikis or they weren't raising the black power fist. And he seems to continue to be traumatized by that in some ways because he said, he said, if he ever got into a position of authority, this is a direct quote, if I ever got into a position of authority, I would remind people, I would help people understand that there are 42 million black people in this country, which means there are 42 million different ways of being black. Let me pause here. Just a little, a little, a little, a little tasty shade. Um, just for funny, because there's one dude who has been incarcerated now for decades. Mumia Abu Jamal, free Mumia Abu Jamal. Back in July 2009, he, this is in a collection of essays by Mumia Abu Jamal. 
who asked the question, have black lives ever mattered? This actually came out not too long ago. This was published in 2017. But in 2009, he wrote that in an essay called The Arrest of Harvard Scholar, Dr. Henry Louis Gates, there are 42 million different ways to be black, which means maybe 42 million different ways to die. Choose one. Anyway, uh, Mumia says, if the arrest, humiliation, and resultant brouhaha over Harvard scholar Dr. Henry Louis Gates has taught us anything, it is that people in the United States still dwell in separate worlds, one that rarely meets. So you got the social structure. Then you have governance formations among African people. Who are we to each other? Professor Gates acknowledging that there, for every different African person in the world, there's a different African person in the world. You'd almost call that a truism in some ways, but you know, we're going to let him be okay because again, it's not who we are to each other that created the situation that I'm about to mention that you mentioned to me last night, Professor Hunter, that Jacob Carruthers used as a trope and the folks at the Comedic Institute for years. But it's not how we look at each other that shapes the conditions that we have to struggle against. It's how the social structure has managed to jam us into this oneness. And Mumia writing about, this is right after Dr. Gates was arrested in, in his own house as if he broke in his house, as if his neighbors didn't recognize him. Mumia writes, and while some wags have rushed to tell us that the incident reveals more about the continuous clash of class, I beg to differ. If anything, it shows us just the opposite. When it comes to black people of whatever wealth, status, class, or prominence, the usual rules don't apply. Indeed, handling blacks seems to always require exceptions to standards that apply to most everybody else. Consider this, most Americans can agree with the familiar aphorism that, quote, a man's home is his castle. I guess that would be a man's man. I'm not sure. But a, a woman's home, a person's home is their uh, domicile, <laughs> a place where they reside. Uh, by the way, parenthetically put a footnote, shout out to the D.C. government, which could not solve the crisis and therefore should be condemned because this week, people who are unhoused had all their belongings in the world seized by the National Park Police put in dumpsters and were cleaned off of a park here in downtown DC as human beings stood on the outer edge and yelled shame at these folk. This is the society we live in today. Back to where I was reading. Um, so a person's home, if they have one, is their castle. Mumia writes, not black men. How else could Skip Gates get busted on his doorstep for disturbing a non-existent peace? Goes on, goes on. But then at the end he says, uh, cops get paid vacations for their hate speech and bigotry. What do their victims get? Will a beer at the White House put this fire out? I doubt it. For it, no, for it ignores that every day, that what happens every day in dozens of states to countless men and women who don't have Harvard PhDs or friends in high places. The sad truth is being black in America is akin to being born low caste in India where separate and unequal rules remain despite promises in their constitution. Barack Obama's presidency hasn't changed reality, but may mask it by providing cover for the ugly things that blacks endure in a nation where white elites can claim a false post-racialism. A beer summit on the lawn at the White House won't change that either. That's Mumia on Henry Gates to the larger point that what we exist in, whether it be Henry Gates or Greg Carr, whether it be Barack Obama or Karen Hunter, whether it be any of the 
2,000 plus who were in here before the overflow room was, so I imagine it's more than several thousand now who are in here live right now. And the folks who are gonna be engaging us by the thousands over the arc of the week as we continue to develop this independent space, which true for all of us is this. We are in, to quote Karen Hunter, who didn't know perhaps that you were quoting someone else who also says the same thing. And she said last night to me, we're gonna need an ocean of clean water to wash away this mess. In my head, listening to that genius comment, ding, Jago Carruthers, Anderson Thompson, all the folks who we are proud now in the Association for the Study of Classical African Civilizations to publish things that they had written that they didn't get a chance to put out, speeches they gave that we now are transcribing and publishing. These are the first three issues, as I've showed y'all a couple of times of the Compass, the Journal of the Association for the Study of Classical African Civilizations. This brother right here, Anderson Thompson, out of Chicago, very frequently used this phrase. Uh, this brother here, Jacob Carruthers, who you can see a little bit there as he is receiving the elder staff from John Henry Clark. Uh, this is when Dr. Carruthers turned 65. We were all at South Shore Center there in Southside Chicago and had the ritual. He's passing the staff, the elder staff, intergenerational behind him, helping Dr. Clark, who by now has lost his sight, is of course the great Conrad Walter Rorell also now an ancestor, but in these, in this, you know, red, black, and green, as uh, Roy Ayers said, if you think about it, you know what I mean, the first three issues, but this phrase, we need an ocean of water to wash away this mess. As we continue to pour these clean glasses of water, we understand that what we are going to do, not only for ourselves, but for humanity, as we join with other efforts to do this, Narrative isn't the only place, isn't the first place, isn't the best place yet. It is the best place right now for us in this time and this moment. And Nubia, the best place for us at this time and this moment, joining with other best places in this flood to wash away what Anderson Thompson called, what Jago Carruthers called, and what the Comedic Institute calls the mess. <laughs> That's what they call the mess. Dr. Carruthers, in that same speech I was quoting from, the speech that he gave uh, in Cleveland in 1993. He says, we must address what we in Chicago call, as he would say, the mess. What is the mess? Well, there are many ways to define the mess. The mess is this modern world system we find ourselves in that is not good for any human being, that isn't good for the planet, that isn't good for our lived experiences, that isn't good for us. By us, I mean everybody. And by everybody, I mean the animals, the plants, every living thing, the mess, the mess. So with that in mind, let's talk a little bit just for a little while today on President's Day weekend. And for those of you watching this past President's Day weekend, the week that follows it, let's talk about this field of function of how we deal with this question of mess and how people who are educating, just tying a few things together now, how people who are tasked with the function of education in our society are tasked with or charged with or entrusted with the responsibility of helping each subsequent generation acquire the skills, acquire the, uh, the abilities to face the mess and clean up the mess and help ensure that we live in a, in a better world, that the species here doesn't do it. And as I said, as we've been saying, this is the third week. And it's a blessing because, you know, we got next week to continue this conversation. You know, the occasion of the advanced placement course 
in African-American studies that has been introduced by the college board is a great occasion for us to think about education. Professor Hunter, I, I was listening to your conversation with the newly elected governor of Maryland um, the other day, as you had him on the airway, on, your, on the airways there at Sirius XM. Uh, uh, just a universe. If, I mean, I, I love getting stopped in the streets wherever I am. And it's happened everywhere. It's, I listen to Karen Hunter every day, or I catch y'all on the weekends, or I'm a Nubian. And, you know, I mean, because we see that this this is what is being built. You gave the metaphor of bamboo yesterday. Oh, well, last week when you talked to the governor, I thought it was hilarious. But in his conversation, y'all brought up in that, is it 60 some billion dollars a year budget in Maryland? Uh, y'all brought up the topic of education. Could you talk a little bit about that thing? It was very powerful. I can hear you. I, I have to mute myself from the chuckling. That's the little shade that gets uh, thrown from time to time. Uh, no, I mean, I didn't have as much time as I'd like because I had a whole agenda that I wanted to, you know, go through with him. And, you know, uh, first well, of all, I'll assume, assume he'll be back. That's yeah, one of the good things about being friends with the governor. You can have him back. <laughs> uh, friendship is too, is too much. No, I don't think. No, Wes Morrison, he said, I mean, that spirit, I've only met him, but that brother, I, I, I have no doubt. You'd probably be a regular on your airways. Anyway, oh, <laughs> I, I was incredibly happy because not everyone not everyone feels uh comfortable coming on my show because i don't give you a list of questions there's no vetting there's no like well what do you what you know to make sure that it won't go left you know what i'm saying most most of the politicians have a list of demands or things that i i can't ask and when that happens i invite them not to come on because we i need to be able to ask questions you know freely and to his credit, that was there were no stipulations, which I completely, first of all, I was like, okay, he might be for real, for real. Because, you know, and and I uh, was pleasantly uh, not surprised because from everything that I've seen about him, he moves differently. He's not what I've seen before, you know, and I've sat in a room with a lot of politicians. I was on the editorial board at Daily News for four years, and we had to, you know, sit with every head of state because that was the, the part of the paper that endorsed the president, the governor, the you know, the mayors, all of the positions. So everyone had to come through and sit with the editorial board. He's for real. So I just want to say yeah, he's wow. for real, for real. Yeah. I was like, okay, a real person got elected. <laughs> in the United uh, States of America in 2022. Imagine that. A real person. Now I was I was listening riveted really to a very organic conversation between two people who are clearly deep thinkers one of which is now responsible for millions of lives at the head of state in the state of maryland who has such a firm command of policy but also a vision and a commitment it seems to our common humanity it was really interesting listening to y'all talk for that 30 minutes or so you know and getting into the education because you know he is a he's a product of of people that wanted him to you know do well in school and and so you know i was like you poured all this money in it's a record amount of money going into education, because you know that that is the single thing that can free a lot of young people. And he's focusing on early childhood education, you know, pre, pre, preschool education, because, you know, you got to get them early. But I'm, I really want to dig into if education right now, how does education function? You're putting this money into right. education, but what is education for our children? That's right. What, is, what does it look like? You know, um, that caller that called it, uh, on my show yesterday talking about being alpha male, 
and you know, indoctrinating his son into, but he sends his child to a school where he's only black boy. So I said, um, <laughs> so what is he learning there? Yeah. Yeah, I'm looking at my studio audience, like, okay, so what, what is happening to your child? You know, and I'm sure the teachers are well-meaning. Of course, of course. Put your well, child. some of them, some of them absolutely mean harm, but then there are others who absolutely don't, who mean the opposite. That's right, sure. But the system is not designed yeah. to feed your child all yes. of the things that will make your child feel good about themselves. In the Toni Morrison clip that I think I might play at the end of the show today, hmm. yes, uh, of this of the class, you know, she talks about the lens, the white gaze, and it's inherent. It's it's like deeply indelibly marked and etched into this society. So yeah. even those of us who send our children away for a great education, we move to neighborhoods because on online it says these are the best schools, right? Yes. These are where the highest scores are. Yes. So if your child is being assaulted every day and it's it's inherently part of the system, and Tony Morrison talks about it. You know, when we say black is beautiful and black, we're proud to be. But it's the voice inside. It's it's the looking around and not seeing yourself. It's 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 the inherent way in which teachers don't even acknowledge, you know, the existence and and the value. And you have to somehow, you know, which is what I think fosters this. Like, please validate me. I have to yell Black Lives Matter. I have to say I'm black and I'm proud. I have to say black is beautiful because it's an affirmation. But if you have to say it. Does it really exist? If you have to keep saying it at some point, that's right. It, it rings hollow. So I'm I'm optimistic because I feel like uh, Westmore has thought deeply about this. He's raising some beautiful black children. His wife is a powerhouse as well. Like it's, it's a team effort. I think he surrounded himself with some amazing people, but he he cares and he has a plan, and that's what he does for a living. He's a, a community worker who does planning. He's got a road scholar. Chip, but I don't know what that means, but I think he's really smart. I guess that means you're really smart. You've navigated social structure spaces to come out the other side. You you got your your great Jamaican mama. You 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 know you you know like it's there's some things in him that uh and it's not even like a sight. He's not playing a game either. He won no. not playing. No, he no. won wearing shorts. How about that? It's hot. I'm gonna wear shorts. Singing reggae. You want being a, you want being a black man. <laughs> He didn't have to. He didn't have to code switch or play a role no. to, to sit in that seat. And I, I love that for all the people in Maryland and Maryland. Maryland. Y'all did. Y'all did that. Maryland, that southern place. They say Maryland, and you said that. You said that during the interview. They, they say Maryland the same way they say in D.C. Murrinbury. <laughs> the A. The A is a er. <laughs> Maryland. But but the brother, the caller near the end, who who call up and ask specifically about education which gave y'all opportunity to talk about the importance of the humanities and the arts i thought was also was very yeah. important. yeah yeah i mean if these are the conversations we should be having with our elected officials Absolutely. too you know, you know and if you're just electing people you don't even know where they stand on these things and yet you expect something different and then you're mad when you don't get what you want but you never ask for anything i don't know i don't know how that works we have to be way more sophisticated in electing people we got y'all got lucky in maryland i don't think yeah. You know, 
I don't think y'all really knew what y'all would get. Y'all about to find out, though. And I think it's going to well, be good. You know, it's, it's a demographics play a role. And you brought that up, too, in the conversation. I mean, you with uh, talk about shades. Very exquisite. Just very gently done. I mean, you evoke other states, you know, that you could name, Florida, other places, you know, where, you know, that's not the case. And you made that point. People find themselves. In fact, you, what was the, you asked him a question about what it means to be, in, for all intents and purposes, the head of state in a political entity, the state, of course, where people will suffer or will benefit based on your choices. And then you contrasted Maryland with some of these other states where people will now find themselves trapped. And you ask them about that, what kind of responsibility he feels, you know, or he or she, I mean, when you're a governor, you know, and you've covered, you've covered politicians in political, you know, in political intrigue, state house, certainly in New York. I mean, you find yourself, you know, with a great deal of responsibility. I mean, but what other factors does he have to, to, to consider when trying to make these moves? Yeah. And, and it's, uh, you know, again, just thinking about it in the context of what we're talking about. Um, I talked to a reporter from New York times last week and, and got a, uh, you know, had a talk to her about maybe about an hour and something I said ended up in the paper the, uh, this week about this AP course. And you know, she, she, they quoted me. Let me search for this. Where? Oh, no, no, no. I, I'm only mentioning it in the context of our conversation now. In fact, I hadn't even thought about it this morning to mention it because I, I, I do. I look at every engagement with the social structure and the black facing servants of the social structure. <laughs> you all know who you are. Um, I look at them as existing on the periphery. We're in the, we're in full governance mode now, thanks to you. I mean, we've jailbroken this. It's jailbroken. We have a we have a space now, a governance space. So everything else that operates now must operate with the gravitational pull of this center, and it's and it's happening. As I said, I'm encountering people all the time. Most importantly, not in universities, not in uh, formal education spaces. I was at the Martin Luther King Center uh, Library. Uh, last week. In fact, if you are in and around D.C. before the first week of March and you get a chance, go to the newly reopened Martin Luther King Library, the public library here in Washington, D.C., uh, in the Chinatown area of the city. Beautiful edifice. Uh, you walk in, very inviting, very friendly folk, um, beautiful resources, public resources. If you live in the in the city of D.C. or in the surrounding counties in Maryland or Virginia, you can get a library card and have full access to all the resources of D.C.P.L. But they have a traveling exhibit that debuted here, actually, on Emmett and Mamie Till. That is extraordinary. And it's on the first floor. It takes up most of the right side of the grand first floor there in the in the reopened library and also if you get a chance and i would pull it but i don't know i usually keep that somewhere stashed away there's a mural that was done by a black artists in the wake of the assassination of martin king when they named that library the martin Luther king library that takes up part of the wall the back wall and actually there's a key to it they did the dedication it has to have a copy of that program I, maybe i'll make a note to myself to to pull it down for next week to show it to folk but if you get a chance, come through and do that. But anyway, I was I was in there between classes. I kind of came down to Chinatown. Some of work down there. I love going to the library. And if you get a chance to, when you go, go to the top floor. Well, the, yeah, go to the top floor. The roof is actually a green roof with all kind of uh, places to study. And it's beautiful. But the first floor is the Washingtonia collection, the archive for 
of Washington, D.C. And they have a permanent exhibit there over the on the evolution of Washington, D.C., but it's not one like you would see in white spaces. It's basically a black exhibit, full exhibits on go-go, on black folk in D.C. in the 60s, 50s, 40s. Uh, you see Dunbar High School, but you see Marion Barry. They got a whole section just on Marion Barry. Marion Barry on a horse, <laughs> riding with this cowboy hat in his hand, and then these little speakers. And when you come close, you start hearing one by one individuals, policymakers, community workers, folk who live in the neighborhood, talk about the impact of Marion Barry. They take him from Mississippi all the way through to the statue of him that's in front of city hall but anyway i was down there looking at the at the till exhibit just sitting in the multimedia exhibit there's video there's audio you know maybe till is all through there but not just maybe till all kind of folk there there's actually on loan one of the signs that these white boys keep shooting up down there in the Tallahassee that marks where the Tallahatchie river till's body was pulled out of the river and as i'm standing here somebody say dr carr I looked around it's one of the brothers who works in He's a, he's a lifer in the, the, the D.C. Public Library. I knew him when he worked on a branch at Capitol Hill. I used to go down there for used book sales, and we would chat. But now he's at the Martin Luther King uh, Library, the downtown library, the central library. And he said, man, what, what, what you all are doing, what you and Professor Hunter are doing, brother, I'm so glad to see that that's where y'all have shifted. I said, yeah, brother, because that's us. And so I'm looking forward. Actually, I told him, you know, we're going to stay in conversation because I would love to get some more young people added because they do a lot of programming down there, public programming. Public libraries, as we know, are in many ways the nerve center. And I, I told my, my friend Kinshasa Conwell all, that, all the time, who just retired, as we know, from the National Museum of African American History and Culture. You know, libraries and museums really, to me, are more important than universities. Mm. Or at least museums could be. This book just came out. This is Adam Cooper's new book. I had to send away to the UK for it. The Museum of Other People. So Osnum know about this. From Colonial Acquisitions to Cosmopolitan ex Exhibitions. And what Cooper is writing about is um, how museums, of course, are agents of imperialism. And he's writing about the limits and the possibilities of museums. But if you've already paid your tax dollars, then there's no such thing as free. So all the free programming at the Martin Luther King Library and all our public libraries were paid for by taxes. West Moore is now going to have the responsibility of managing uh, five dozen uh, billion dollars of tax money. And as you pointed out to him um, in y'all's conversation, inheriting and having to clean up some of the mess of Larry Hogan who was trying like hell to give your tax money to rich people, but being blocked consistently by the, the, the House of Delegates in Maryland, uh, where a black woman sits in the chair of leadership. And now with more in, there will be undoubtedly resources that Hogan was trying to give back to his friends that will now be available to you. And he actually gave back millions of dollars to the federal government as if people didn't, the people of Maryland didn't need that money. How do you give money back to the government? Come on now. And, and as and as your friend and brother and now uh, my patron saint, Lou Hutt, might say, <laughs> don't give the money, don't give the government any more money, not one dollar more. <laughs> than, but the money we do pay in our taxes. Right. Hogan giving it back. Why? For them to give it to their millionaire friends. Well, you know, people say, well, voting doesn't matter. Absolutely, it does. Now, voting for the same kind of people don't matter. But when you get somebody like a Westmore, that's going to make a difference in real people's lives in the state of Maryland. 
So you're absolutely right. And, and, and you know, as I was saying, you know, I was telling Kinshasa say this to her all the time. And now, you know, I was talking to brother down at MLK who stopped me because he's in here with us now. You know, these spaces that we've subsidized with our money, public libraries, public museums. I told my students on Tuesday when the news broke that Moderna was getting ready to charge everybody for COVID shots until Bernie Sanders said he wanted the CEO of Moderna to appear before Senate, at which point Moderna said they're suspending their plan and so that the shots will remain free. I told them, do y'all pay taxes? Yeah. Then those shots aren't free. You bought every shot that Moderna, Pfizer, and anybody else is putting in your arm. You bought every one of those shots and you were overcharged. And now with what they talking about charging, they come back and get some more money from you because you already bought them. There's no such thing as free in a government where you pay taxes. Anyway, as I was saying to the brother, you know, some of that tax money we paid to give us free programming for young people and others in, in, in the public libraries. I think everywhere we need to support that because everywhere doesn't have those libraries. That's why Aya Nelly has spent so much money and folks who supporting her spent so much money in a pobo building that library because don't take for granted when you can walk in and take a book out that you paid for because you are the one whose tax dollars paid for the librarians to order the book in the first place for you to check out. Take full advantage of it. And what we have now is a space where as we continue to have these conversations and connect with each other, you can go in now and say, I want this book. I want this book. I want this book. I don't have the money to buy it, but I'm going to tell you to order it. And guess what? There are librarians all over this country, all over the hemisphere and the world, really. But I'm talking now specifically about the United States who will order that book for you, who will order that book for you, which. um, And here's a book that I think is a good book to talk about. You you mentioned her uh, and. We probably hear from her in a minute at the end of our session today, but today's her birthday, Professor Hunter, Tony Morrison. Yes. So Anthony Wolford, this is her book, The Source of Self-Regard. Uh, what makes you, when you, when you hear the name Tony Morrison, what do you think of? This goes for everybody, but since it's a problem since we talk, what do you think of? What do you think uh. of? Chloe Anthony Wilfred, Tony Morris. And thank you, Brother Charles, for bringing this up, saying that uh, there's a shelter somewhere near Georgetown, another one near North Capitol. Many of the parks in D.C. are still full of tents on Sunday around 8.30 a.m. Trucks show up to feed them in McPherson Square. Yeah, McPherson Square, they cleaning it out. So there are a lot of unhoused people, and we know they're not just in D.C., but I thought I'd mention that. But when you... When you uh, we know they're not just unhoused because there's something wrong with them. That's exactly right. So we need to, you know... And if there is something mentally wrong, then we need to do a better job of hey, providing services for people. No question. Because everybody, everybody's not John Fetterman. I mean, shout out to John Fetterman for having the courage to say, yo, I had the stroke. Okay, but I'm depressed. Yo, I got to go to the... Man, I mean, and Walter, you know they going to come for him. Go to Walter Reed to, to deal with his depression. Exactly. Now, what if you can't go to Walter Reed? You ain't got a place to sleep tonight. You know what I'm saying? So you're absolutely right. But anyway, yeah, so, so, so Tony Morrison. Uh, you know, first, I think, well, as an English major, somebody who I didn't understand in my, in my 20s, 18, 19, 20. Yeah, someone I, I thought, I was like, I don't know who she's writing for. <laughs> but, you know, the blue side was, you know, the blue side in Sula. But then I got to Beloved and I was like, confused. Oh, interesting. What is happening? Yeah. But, you know, I had to grow into, I had to grow into Toni Morrison's mind. And I think a lot of times... You know, we write people off because we don't get it. You know, I've been guilty of that. Sure. We write people off. And, and the older I get, the more I read, the more, like, I, for the longest time, poetry, I was like, I don't get poetry. Bunch of words, not feeling it. And now I'm in love with it. 
like, when did this happen? Like, <laughs> I, and, and thank you, Daniel Black, Kevin Powell, you know, yes. so many, you know, Paul Lawrence Dunbar uh, that we, we talk about later, but Langston Hughes and, you know, it's, it's, it's an acquired, when they say things are acquired taste, what, what it really means you sometimes have to catch up to yes. the things that people are saying. So I had to catch up to Toni Morrison. And when I caught up, I, I couldn't let her go. Yes. And it was everything. It was jazz. It was everything. I, like I have every single book of hers. Ah. Yeah. But that, that's, uh, you're not alone in that. I think we've all had that experience with Miss Morrison, or at least most of us. Um, <laughs> Dr. Norman, Nate Norman, one of our advisors who's now on faculty at Morehouse. By the way, shout out to Morehouse. They just passed their birthday. You know, Morehouse does their thing. They take the whole week. I, mean, I saw, uh, it was a picture, Otis Moss uh, Jr., the elder, Otis Moss III, who's now at Trinity, of course, in, in the wake of Jeremiah Wright. And then Otis, Otis the third son, who is graduating this year from Morehouse, they were at the King Chapel, three generations of, you know, well, two Morehouse men and one man of Morehouse. You know, you got to graduate to be a Morehouse man. So, so of course, the, the young brother had his suit on, but the other two had their academic regalia on. And I think their candle in the dark ceremony is tonight. So shout out to everybody at Morehouse who be there for their major fundraiser of the year. Alvin Ailey was in town. I know they had the Ailey concert last night. I mean, it's important, you know, Black Institute. And you know, because you travel through those spaces, you know what I mean? It's just, it's just beautiful. But... Uh, Thinking about Ms. Morrison, uh, Dr. Norman, Nate Norman, who's on faculty down there at Morehouse after many years at Temple and before that Fordham, he often says, you know, between Toni Morrison and Mary Baraka, he always felt more kind of attuned politically with Baraka. But he said, beloved, in some ways for him, kind of marks a change in Ms. Morrison. It's not Son of Psalm, it's not Sue, it's not Bluest Eye, but Beloved is a different animal. You know what I mean? And to hear you say that as yeah. someone who was steeped in the humanities that you didn't, I'm wondering, that's fascinating. Why do you think that, you know, what would what She is also, you know, you think about as someone that was in publishing for a number of years. Right. You, there, There is a schizophrenia with people who you go to school, you do all the right things, you pass the test, you get out in the world, you make, you know, you make your bones in these social structure spaces that in your mind, you're not, you're playing a game, you know, you realize, okay, this is what I need to do to get to this. All right. What does success look like? And you're having all of these conversations with yourself. You get into publishing as she was at Random House, right? And you're like, right. okay, if I do this, this is all right. This opens doors. And you're systematically now seeing, first of all, the racism, you're seeing the doors, you're seeing, you know, how you're valued and how you're not valued. And for her, you know, doing Angela Davis and Muhammad Ali and doing all these amazing that black book. Yeah. You you feel Huey like Newton. Huey Newton did acquired uh, Ivan Van Sertiman. They came before Columbus. Her peer and shout out to Dana Williams, who's working on a book on that actually, the editorship years. Yeah. It Tony Morrison clears the path for a great number of the books that we now consider foundational. That's right. And you and you feel like as I did at the Daily News that you're working from within with from within to change. Mm. So get to write a couple of paragraphs to shift the narrative just a little bit. You're doing something. You're black and you're gonna, you know, put these stories out. You're gonna do a you know a whole thing on the business of rap. Everyone's focused on the music. Let's talk about all of the powerhouse, but you know, you so you you get in these spaces that don't want you there, really, and you do the best you can. That's right. And I look at her in that way, and then there's reward. You got Pulitzer, Nobel Prizes, you 
you know, all of the things. And then you bust white people upside their head in these interviews. <laughs> you know, I always knew I was morally superior. You go, wait, what? You said that out your mouth <laughs> to these people's faces. I love you. <laughs> well, see, I think that become and see that that that's that's where it gets complicated because Tony Ms. Morrison. And I can't claim to know Toni Morrison. I, I, I was able to be in the same space with her several occasions, um, one of which was in Paris. Actually, we went. The Toni Morrison Society had a thing, and I was actually able to go to read a paper there. Um, so to watch her with her age mates, the great Eleanor Trailer, who was her very good friend, you know, who she would stay with sometime when she was here in D.C., who's still around on, on top of the earth, to see them interact. And to hear them talk, you know, Sonia Sanchez, and, and these are L, these are these are these are black women of a certain age. So whatever you think of how black women of a certain age interact, that is exactly how <laughs> they. <laughs> so, so the shade, the nuance, all of that is there. It's no, it's no interviews or just regular. But she brought a lot of that into her her social structure, face and conversation, as you said. Before you pick up this book, I want to just throw something out there. Though there was also, having been in spaces, this kind of um, inaccessibility mm-hmm. that both she, Maya Angelou, other, you know, like, and and maybe there, maybe you have to build a wall around you to protect yourself. I don't, I don't know because you're very accessible. I I like to think of myself as accessible, even yeah. though I have boundaries. I know I ain't y'all ain't breathing on me. But- <laughs> But you know that, right? You know that I'm not going to be out there raw dog in the air. Y'all not going to be like, hi, Karen, with your, your mask off and stuff. But that's, you know, my own little issues that I have. Well, it's not issues. I don't want COVID or right. anything else. Uh, nothing else I wanted. But, you know, but I feel like we're accessible, you know. And there's something to be said because none of us got to these pinnacles or these places on our own steam. You know, we, we are at the you know, grace of people who came before us was poured into us. So it's our responsibility, I think, to be accessible, which is what this in class with car is, you know, to get to, yes, we're interacting. I'm in the chat. I'm in both chats. You're in the chat. We On Monday, we open it up. People can talk. And it's important, right, that there's no one on a throne. Right. Sitting above us. This is a circle. Yes, right. Yeah, we are all learning. We're all growing. That's right. And so I, I don't know if it's that generation that if once I get to a place, then touch, you know, I'm going to, you know, talk at you about the things that I, you know, I'm going to be very erudite about, you know, and pontificate about uh, the things. And as I live on my river overlooking the, you know, I, I don't know. I mean, God bless, live, live well. But we have to kind of break down these barriers that this is for everybody. It's not like just because I got it. Now I'm going to make sure you get it. Right. And you're going to not get it from a perch. You're going to get it from a real place, which is, you know, I don't know if if I'm looking at that right. And I don't want to cast aspersions. No, and it's not casting aspersions. I think it's trying to be honest. And I think this is what frightens the hell out of the hierarchy. Honesty frightens the hierarchy. Um, the critics of the African-centered curriculum movement in the 1980s and 90s. And I'm thinking about Arthur Schlesinger in particular. And by the way, uh, Brother Sheldon, um, that is a speech that Jacob Carruthers gave November the 6th, 1993 in Cleveland, Ohio. If you go on YouTube, you can find that speech. Um, It's called Black 
talk and the white question, brother, because he's talking about black folk who he would call defenders of Western civilization, one of which he would name in a book of subsequent essays that came out a couple of years after that called Intellectual Warfare. And I would suggest you get this. This is Haki and them third world press, as you see, um, intellectual warfare. Um, and by the way, uh, you know, we raised the name of third world press in a moment because I understand in some of the extreme weather events over the last month and a half, two months, that they lost a great deal of their stock, um, third world press. So, you know, they you know, think about them when you're ordering books. Intellectual warfare. This is Jake Carruthers' book. He's got a whole chapter in here on the fragmented philosophy of Henry Gates and uh, he calls him a loose cannon in search uh, in search of cannons. But um, in this document, which was subsidized by the by Federal Express, there are no fewer than 18 ads in this little book of uh, 90 pages. And here's one of them by Federal Express. You see Federal Express ad there. Does it mean? This is, of course, the book that I mentioned a couple of weeks running, The Disuniting of America, Arthur Schlesinger Jr., one of Kennedy's friends, whose daddy was this historian who was friends with Carter Woodson. Um, this is the takedown book, the trashing book, when they were talking, when, when Schlesinger is basically sent out, again, almost 20 ads in here by Federal Express who paid for it. This book went out for free to college presidents and academics, corporation leaders, and it's in America trying to shape the discourse because they were terrified as hell of the African-centered movement. And Jacob Carruthers wrote a response to it that we actually published in the Association for the Study of Classical African Civilizations. It's called Carruthers on Schlesinger. Uh, this, is the, this is actually the publication. Um, our whole suite of publications will be available shortly, so stay tuned for that. The Compass we have those journals. We're republishing what we call the critical commentaries. But Dr. Carruthers included uh, a version of that essay, a later version in his book, Intellectual Warfare. And what he says is, to the point that you raised, Prof, is that Schlesinger and them are basically saying that Asa Hilliard and Leonard Jeffries and Milana Karinga and Malefi Asante and Wade Nobles and so many others are basically making up history. Carruthers' response is, yeah, first of all, that's not true. Second of all, even if it was true, what you what you want well, you want to replace it with your made up history, which is a joke and excludes everybody, that fantasy narrative that you have. But most importantly, what he says is that no, what the African Senate scholars are, are, are searching for is truth. What is the truth? Well, truth can be a matter of fact, it can be a matter of narrative, meaning perspective. And that's very important. Angie Porter, uh, whose article, by the way, is over the 2000 download link. Nobody reading law review articles like we jailbroken this whole thing. The uh, her recent article on African protocol, Africana legal studies, the field that she is pioneering in. She spent uh, last Wednesday night with my students over to law school, walking them through it. One thing she talked about is using the language of gamers. She said, if you walk into with the headset on the virtual reality, you're looking at one thing and she said, but then you can switch to virtual reality. And now you're looking from another perspective. She said, a lot of stuff is perspective. So when you start talking about Africans, as we talked about last week at the beginning of her article, where she talks about how these Africans, these Bamana people, men met in Louisiana and decided that this slave owner got to die. And she said in the, in the legal literature, they might say that they killed this man, that they, but then in the governance formation, pioneering in this notion of Africana states, they know they convened, they deliberated, they adjudged, and then they 
executing him according to the sentence. I mean, it's all a matter of perspective. So you got facts and you got perspectives. Or as Theobaldo Benga used to tell us, you know, you have knowledge as reason or fact-based. You have knowledge as opinion. You know, it's basically based on your experience, your life experiences, your choices. And then you have knowledge by faith, which is a thing where, you know, you can't see it. So you just step out on it, right? But so out of those bases, what Jacob Carruthers says, critiquing Arthur Schlesinger after he goes chapter and verse through the factual errors in, in Schlesinger's argument, he says it's basically about ideology. You want to maintain white supremacy. And what scares you about the African-centered movement isn't the idea of the importance of African civilizations or African culture. What scares you is we're looking for the truth because you know you don't have the truth and nor are you interested in the truth. And that's where Ms. Morrison, I think, has some interesting things to say. As I said, we were in Paris for the... Uh, Tony Morrison Society and Dr. Williams, Dana Williams is actually president of the Tony Morrison Society now. But, you know, Eleanor Trailer um, was there. So many others, you know, folk, uh, Fair Griffin uh, was there. So many different people. And I'm just glad to be there. You know, my job is to read this paper, but that's almost an excuse because, you know, I'm going hunting. I'm hunting for books. I'm going to the uh, crime scenes called museums. So I spent, we spent a lot of time in the Louvre. I'm going to the Louvre because I want to see all this stuff you stole. I want to, you cut the ceiling out of Dendera, the temple of Dendera, which I've been to many times in Kemet. I want to see where you stole it and took it to, the Dendera Zodiac. That's in the Louvre. I don't need to go see the Louvre. I want to see all this comedic stuff. I'm going to watch y'all watch the Mona Lisa, the virtual reality that we're in now. You know, everybody taking pictures instead of just looking at the damn picture. But, you know, but anyway. So as I'm hunting books in the, uh, you know, sitting there listening to Miss Morrison, you know, just, just basically taking it all in. I, you know, take off looking for the bookstores. So I'm in all the bookstores, Shakespeare and Company, all the used bookstores going. I had to get over to La Matin, which is across the street from Présence Africaine. So if you ever get to Paris, that's where the black books are. And not my black, I mean global black, the Africans. You know, that's where Obenga stuff, Shake on the Joke, of course. And of course, Présence Africaine is the bookstore that uh, uh, Joke and his wife uh, ran for many years. Halloween joke, not Shake on the Joke. But check out the jokes books are there. So I picked up this little uh, volume. This is the volume, the companion volume that Toni Morrison put together with a lot of her friends uh, that curates the collection, the uh, the uh, the exhibit that she was asked by the Louvre to put together. It had long closed, but I was able to get my hands on the volume. Uh, this is Toni Morrison, Invité à Louvre. Etranger chez suis, meaning stranger at home, the stranger at home. Think about James Baldwin, stranger in the village, I suppose, if you can. But I'm raising that because Ms. Morrison, particularly in the last decades of her life, when I can't even imagine, Prof, I mean, I, I you know, when we, when you were down here and had the live foods this Fridays, you know, and everybody is there and everybody was cool. It was wonderful to see everybody, just a beautiful thing. But when you're the center of a space, you know, and you, you're the center of so many spaces you come in, and, you know, I'm at the center of space, some spaces I'm in, you know, it becomes a question of how do you manage that energy, particularly when you're a person who is constantly listening, when you're a listener, and you're a listener, I mean, you know, so that energy, and I've seen Ms. Morrison, I know they had her 80th birthday, for example, at the Library of Congress, and we went down for it. And, you know, she came in, she was in, in her chair, she somebody was assisting her, so they wheeled her in, not that she couldn't walk, but it's just more convenient at that age. And, you know, she's there and everybody's there, everybody's coming. And I'm just standing there looking at her and thinking, I can't even imagine what that would be like, particularly when 
you have spent your life deeply immersed in language. So every one of these people bringing this energy is a character you could make into a whole book. Yes, yes. You know what I'm saying? So when they come, oh, I love you. So I mean, at what point does it just bubble up out of you and now you just sitting there basically recycling energies? But always gracious. <laughs> you know what I'm I don't even know what that's like. You know what I'm saying? I mean, not always. Now there were moments because she is a she was a black woman of a certain age, yeah. <laughs> right? When she can, when you can tell that. Okay, I had enough now. You yes. guys, do <laughs> uh, out of here. Uh, you know that that is the thing. You know, I I think with both of us because we're very similar. You know, mm-hmm. you you want to navigate this that we are all human. Like you don't want to be put on a pedestal. You don't want to be no. in a position to like be be othered, right? Because we're all we're all coming at it from different. You know, you might be super brilliant. I think you're definitely a genius. That is your your superpower. And that you know, I'm just saying, own that. It's it's, it, but it doesn't make you better than anyone else. And I feel like right once we get over that, like everybody, we all we all coming at different places, times, you know, whatever. But we're all human. No one's better than anyone else. So don't, please don't put me on a pedestal. Don't put him, you know, it's like, we're, we're figuring this out. You know, yeah, we may know some more things than some other people. I may read more. You definitely read more. All the books around, you read more than all of us. But, but you, that's you, your, you that's listen to more people that's than I do. And you bring, we all bring it together. That's <laughs> what I'm saying. So, yeah. you know, it, yeah. it's a circle. Yes, yes. You know, so yes, yes. all yeah. of that. Yes. Uh, as you were talking, I was also thinking, um, and thank you, Yvette, um, Audrey Lord's birthday is today, Hunter College, of course. Oh, wow. Yeah. And, and I haven't, and let me be honest, I have not uh, fallen in love with Audrey Lord's work yet. So, you know, for me, it's not, but for some people, it's everything. For Kevin Powell, my birthday twin, uh, brother who I absolutely love and respect, who's brought mm. some people to the table, like Pastor Warren, um, and I'm, I'm grateful, like I'm discovering new people through him and his work. Yes. He's everything. Bell Hooks is everything for him. But he's somebody that had to come to his um, humanity, you know, after battling some right. of his demons, right? So he's been very him, public about that. That's yeah. Right. So Audrey Lord and Bell Hooks is a, is a salvation for him. But I, I know that these are important people who's also born on this day, which is wild that Tony Morrison and Audrey Lord are both born on February 18th. I don't know what that means. But you know, that's you know, I'm glad you raised that as well because um you 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 kind of mentioned him a moment ago and let's return to him for just a second, long enough for me to um uh this is a book I found myself after I bought it. I was sitting out somewhere around here and I started reading it and I couldn't put it down. This is Gene Jarrett's new book. And by new, I believe, maybe about been about a year and a half. Let me see. No, not even. 2022. It did come out last year. It's called Paul Lawrence Dunbar, The Life and Times of a Caged Bird, Gene Andrew Jarrett. Uh, Gene Jarrett is a professor of English at Princeton. And, uh, I mean, he's gone through all the archives on Dunbar. And Dunbar is a, is a complicated case. It made me think of, when you mentioned Audrey Lord, it made me think of Dunbar. Dunbar is an alcoholic. What? Oh yeah, no question. Stone cold. And wait, wait, moment- wait for a second, because I only—I mean, I've heard the name, of course. But mm-hmm. you know, you talk about Dunbar High School, and when I mentioned it on the radio, this week, so many people called up. I went to a Dunbar High School. I went no to no question. I went to like all over the country. There are Dunbar High Schools named for this man, and then I wanted to know why. You know, 
and and the Dunbar that you talk, he was born in Dayton, Ohio. Dayton. So and Larry Crow take yeah. Ohio. Yes. Yes. But why? Why DC? Why? Why did people put schools named after? Why did they do that? Well, well he moved to DC. He lived in DC. Uh, he worked uh, for the federal government um, in one of those low roles, you know. But Howard. Yeah, Howard is. Well, here's the thing about Dun Dun the thing about Dunbar. This is what I mean when you mentioned Audre Lorde. It made me think about Dunbar because when you read Warrior Poet or you read even not her writings as much as the writings about her. Audrey Lord gets complicated too in terms of abusive personal relationships. Documented. This ain't gossip. And I'm saying that to say that when we think about how we receive each other in our full humanity, it becomes very complicated because, you know, there's, there's no defense for how Paul Dunbar dealt with his wife, Alice Dunbar Nelson, even before they were married. Um, Jared is generous of ways although he mentions the term rape he puts it in the context of dunbar writing to her in the wake of a kind of liquor filled encounter that he comes home drunk and then you know impose himself on her did he did he not but by reading his letters it seems to be very clear that he did because he's apologizing profusely as people who are addicts might do when they have moments of clarity but i'm saying i like to say this man lived to be 34 years old tuberculosis took him out his life was filled with pain and as you know anytime we go to dayton of course larry crow is going to take you by the dunbar house which is run by the national park service and the brothers and sisters there again i my hat is always off to those black women and men not just black women and men of course but to the rangers of the national park service except when you clearing out stuff from mcpherson square now you need to leave them damn homeless people alone that's the cap that's the park police it's not the rangers the rangers i'm talking about on two on the sites the the, the sisters and brothers who manage paul lawrence dunbar's house which he bought for his mother he's very close to his mother where he died you, you stand there in the parlor where he died from tuberculosis at 34 years old his mother actually came to the rededication of the colored prep high school m street high school when it was renamed paul lawrence dunbar high school here in dc paul lawrence dunbar's mother came and spoke he was very close to his mother she's a black woman but his wife who he loved clearly but also beat on beat her to almost to death i'm reading like what now i'm telling you this is the thing prof this is where you get into the complicated nature of what we're talking about this is this is this is very difficult because then when you go behind the paradigm shattering, community grounded work of Audre Lorde, it becomes very complicated. You see, and then we ask ourselves, how do we receive each other in our full humanity? Where where, how, where do we employ generosity? Where do we address the silences? Where do we fill in the gaps? And then how do we make our choices? Say again, I mean, it really is. It, it becomes it becomes challenging. And so, yeah, Dunbar, those schools are named Dunbar, as I often tell my students at Howard, I've told them over the years. You know, there's a approved list of Negroes and that list gets bigger or smaller or changes depending on the context we find ourselves in. I'm talking now about those of us in this global community who are, had the occasion to have been born in the United States. Coming out of the Civil War during Reconstruction and Paul Dunbar is born in 1872. So he's born three years before Carter Woodson is born. Paul Dunbar grew up in a small city. You know, that's where the Wright brothers are. In fact, the Wright brothers factory is not too far from where Dunbar is buried. In fact, I mean, right there in Dayton, Ohio. Larry walked you through that history chapter and verse like he was there. Again, one of our most brilliant historians, Larry Crow. But Dunbar is, by the time he reaches in the 1890s, this kind of 
broad public attention platform for less of a bet lack of a better term which has to come for him because we're not talking about internet we're not talking about television or radio we're talking about personal appearances as a poet so it's coming out of the black institutions but it's also coming out of his engagement with white people he's platformed by white people too in fact primarily at a certain point that's how he's able to make the move perhaps from from ohio to dc i mean and then he's giving lecture, lectures and tours and reading his poetry everywhere and he's not writing He's right. He's not writing in just the kind of phrasing and language that we might be most familiar in our governance formations with Dunbar. I mean, Dunbar is one of, for example, Dan Black's favorite poets. And if he was here, he would recite for you. You know, I won't even attempt to recite Dunbar in what the social structure would call a dialect. Although I could, you know, approximate it. We had to recite Dunbar at Forensics at Tennessee State. That's what we did. But for me, Dunbar's brilliance is across the range. So when Dunbar says we wear the mask that um, grins and lies, hides our cheek and shades our eyes, this debt we pay to human guile with torn and bleeding hearts, we smile and mouth with myriad subtleties. Said, why should the world be overwise in counting all our tears and sighs? Nay, let them only see us when we wear the mask. We smile, but oh, great Christ, our cries to thee from tortured souls arise. We sing, but oh, the clay is vile beneath our feet and long the mile. But let the world dream otherwise. We wear the mask. That's a social structure, governance structure poem in the form of cultural meaning making with a way of knowing that helps us know that who we are is not for us to share with you unless we want to. Toni Morrison shatters that by sharing with the social structure much of who she is and much of how we are thinking. I'm gonna read from her in a moment, but Dunbar is, go ahead. And, and she talked about that. There's a clip that I was- Yeah, there we go. You know, and, and I'm, I'll drop it in the chat, you know, where she talks about the reason why she wrote is because everybody was writing to almost uh, let the social structure know that we are special, we're powerful, you know, but no one told those stories, those hidden stories. And she felt it was her responsibility to talk to us about us, about the hurt and the pain and the trauma and all of the things we have to do. And while, while most of the, she said, most of the writers were black male and everything was, we're great, everything's great, you know, we're powerful. We come from greatness. We, you know, she was like, well, what about the little girl who's been abused? And, you know, and so that was her call to action. And I, I wonder, because I struggle with this, I promise you, I struggle with how much, you know, how much I allow of the conversations we need to have among ourselves. Yes. Like we have to have these conversations though. And, oh, but they're looking, you know, they're watching because, you know, they're watching and they're listening. And, you know, I don't want to give anyone fodder to, you know, go and, and hurt us more. But if we don't have these conversations among ourselves, then how, how do we heal? How do we do we heal in silence? Do we heal in cover? Do we heal in the shadows or do we claim all of the things like you just did with Paul Lawrence Dunbar? And thank you, because I didn't know all of that about him. Yeah. Still doesn't take a single thing away from the work and the things that he left behind. But we got to acknowledge, like we acknowledge Chris Brown's problematic self and all the other problematic people that we love. And we can have conversations about and love their music. 
or the art, but acknowledge that they're problematic, Bill Cosby and others, right? We got we have to say it and not well, fight that they're human. Because which of us would want anybody looking at every second of every minute of every hour of every day of our lives? Yes, because y'all is dirty. Everybody's got dirty drawers, right? Come on. At some point, we wash them, you know, hopefully. Or them. not. Or not. Yeah, well. Partic that, particularly when we are rewarded for not washing them. Let's talk about gangster rap. Let's talk about how the market decides to take pathology and make it the identity of our people. And then we somehow erase the fact that there was a time when Calvin Brodus would show up in public with black women on dog chains, walking them down the street. And now somehow he's become Uncle Snoop. That is unforgivable, except perhaps we need to have grace. <laughs> but I, every time I see him, all I hear is bees ain't S but hoes and tricks. And I'm like, and this is the guy standing up at the White House and y'all all dancing. And when I see Barack Obama, I'm like, yeah. I seen her face when she busted in. I said, shit, it's a draft. Shut the door, bitch. Come on in. Nigga, what? All I guess when I see Jay-Z, I'm not just looking at philanthropy. I'm looking at how did you make that money, bro? When do we make choices, Professor Honey? I mean, we got to have grace, right? <laughs> oh, do we? Now you just accuse us of walking around with dirty drawers and not cleaning them, like, as a no, culture. No, 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 I'm sorry. No, I should, I'm I should like, no, we got to agree with that, though. When, when do we wash our drawers? No, I shouldn't say dirty drawers. You don't need drawers. The drawers are just blocking what you didn't wash in the first place. In oh, words, wow. We're walking around dirty. Yeah, yeah. Now, see, now I can I can hear Cornell. I can hear I can hear Cornell West coming in here and saying human beings are creatures of uh, what do you call it? Featherless, furless creatures, two-legged creatures walking around who, who have an experience that were coming came into the world born between feces and urine. That's he loves saying that. Basically, what he's saying is we all come into the space not as archetypes, but as flesh and blood. When we come out of our mother's womb, it is the grace of whatever sustains us, whether you believe in sacred science, faith, opinion, or fact. That's where we come. And Toni Morrison is sharing that. Now, the question becomes, in a social structure that curates Black spectacle to maintain the hierarchy, what are the choices she's made? Frank Thomas made choices that improved the lives of some Black people and gave the hierarchy a way to maintain control. Because as they say in South Africa, all y'all South Africans know this you know, who were here, you know, the, the, the running saying in South Africa is, yeah, they turned over the vote to black people and they said, okay, y'all can run the government. You can wear the crown, but we're going to keep the jewels. Franklin mm -hmm. Thomas is part of that. Now, I don't care if you get, get a little hand, couple of deals to make some black millionaires, you know, so Ramaphosa is still sticking money in his couch. That's a story for another day, but BEE, -E, black empowerment, you know, there in, uh, had a student who uh, then went to law school as a lawyer now, uh, Jahan, Jahan Shaid, who First time we took students to South Africa, she did her paper on black uh, black economic empowerment, BEE, -E, what they call it in South Africa. And this is based in some ways on affirmative action in the United States. You can create a small class of black elites if you know that they are then going to identify more with maintaining the hierarchy than they are with their people, rhetoric notwithstanding. That, of course, is Randall Robinson's critique of Frank Thomas's very good friend, uh, uh, Vernon Jordan. I mean... Are you for the race? Yes. Are you for the millionaires too? Yes. And they can have, both can happen at the same time. Well, this is where Derek Bell might inject what he would call the concept of interest convergence. He says, when you see black people make progress in a racial hierarchy of society like the United States, he says, it's because the interests of black people have converged with the interests of the white people in control. 
or the white people who can put their racism aside, even if only momentarily. In other words, your interest and my interest, I see converge now. The pufferfish in Florida, you know, he attacked AP African American studies. I'm going to ban it. So people pick up sides and there's an internal debate what Jake Carell's might call a civil war among black people, black academics. You took me out, blah, 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 blah. Okay, but the social structure, yeah, they, say they got a debate going on too, but it ain't nearly as intense as black folk. And then what happens? The pufferfish comes out last week and says, I'm thinking we can get rid of, uh, we can get rid of all the, uh, the, the AP. We don't need the college board. Huh? No, because we have IB, International Baccalaureate, we have the Cambridge uh, formation, which, you know, they can assign advanced credit. And we have dual enrollment in the community colleges. So what we don't need to do is have uh, necessarily the college board. The college board doesn't need to be the only purveyor of getting college uh, credit for high school courses. Now, Derek Bell might be chuckling from the ancestral realm. This was called interest convergence. Now, a bunch of people who were indifferent about African-American studies. Wait, you're going to get rid of AP European history? Wait, AP American, AP world history? Oh, hell no. This guy's going too far. Interest convergence. Now, the question becomes for the black elites, at what point do you think you can inject yourself into a social structure and figure out how to, through maybe sheer force of genius, talent, hard work, persistence, some combination of all those things, as Franklin Thomas said, uh, unplanned life. How can you influence that social structure and maybe open it up a little bit so that it says your interests and our interests, and by your, I don't mean you as an individual, I mean your people's interests and our interests converge and now we can move forward. It is a calculation we all make, but very few of us are in this kind of white spaces, social structure spaces in the context of a racialized United States, because we know social structure is just a broad category. But in a racialized settler state like the United States, we're talking about the United States, you know, you know, what calculations, very few of us get to make the calculations of a Paul Dunbar and his generation, of a Toni Morrison and her generation, um, or anyone in this generation. Each generation produces individuals like that who are often seen in a racialized social structure as representative whether they want to be or not again remember miss morrison saying at one point i didn't want to write about race but you know i mean this is society i find myself in and can i come through race to my common humanity august wilson saying i'm not writing for a black audience but i am writing out of a black experience to whoever's going to receive it james baldwin stranger you talk about tony morrison stranger at home well you know she puts the exhibit together the louvre pairing the egyptian and the african with the european okay that's very nice and i'm going to the louvre meanwhile somebody didn't eat tonight in paris and they can't think about the louvre because they stomach hurt so i mean what are you doing in there but james baldwin her friend james baldwin goes to sweden and writes a stranger in the village, goes to Paris, notes of a native son. In other words, and people say he's one of the most brilliant, if not the most brilliant writer of the 20th century, and himself, there's a reason why. Baldwin scholars will tell you that some of James Baldwin's private papers and archives are, are embargoed for X number of years because, you know, a human being, again, but grappling with race. But they're all writing about and with around race. But each generation is going to do it differently. There are Dunbar high schools around the country. And let me pause here. Die on the clock. Let me pause here to say that, and we've been saying this since we began Nubia, 
and since we began in class but when we began in class we didn't have newbie yet but so now we have both with youtube and, and the broader face and then and newbie are here the one of the great values of this is the archive i mean that very i don't i mean that as much as anything else in this space that we're all in this circle we're in the places you went to school it matters what name is on those buildings, what names you carry. We all carried names. We probably, I, I claim Tennessee State. These are my people. And Tennessee is a Native American word. So at least I ain't got a white man's name on my chest like Oliver Otis Howard. But the we claim those names. We, we put energy in those names. If you went to a school named for a black person, I don't care where, they, where it is in the world. We're in Nubia now, so we're global. Please. You know, there should be some Walter Rodney schools. In Guyana, they should be, maybe there are. They are put that in because I'm not aware of them. In fact, uh, I understand Patricia Rodney was on with uh, with uh, Baba Adesoje and Mamandoku and uh, Baba Milton Alamadi on their regular radio show on WBAI this week, which is brilliant. Again, this conversation we're having, we need to name those things. And I, I mentioned that in passing because, and then I'll come back to what I was saying. As this is just a footnote to what I'm thinking about because we need to fill up our chats, fill up in newbie. Fill, where did you go to school? If it was named for a black person, let us know. If it wasn't, what's the politics behind it? Because we're making an archive. We are jailbreaking knowledge. It's very important. Knowledge should not be the purview of academic overlords of any racial background. If I read one more book by some young very well-meaning brilliant person of african descent remixing something that we've talked about with very little direct contact who thought they could somehow interpret something out of an archive i'm gonna say uh-uh that's our story meaning everybody in this room tell the story so if you went to a school put it in the chat i love reading the chat and I see all these different places like you say we saw there are dunbars all over the country now back to what i was saying um oh one other thing I was in class this week and we were talking about George Washington Carver in another context. We, I was actually in the science and technology category in our conceptual categories in the class at, at Howard. So we're walking through the difference between science, technology and how Carver occupies a kind of between space. He's very spiritual in his life. His scientific revelations, sometimes they would ask Carver, how did you know that? He said, I got up this morning and the plants told me what they could do. Why people couldn't process that? But in terms of ways of knowing, it makes absolute sense, right? So we're talking and... I said, and, and George Carver was on that approved list. Paul Dunbar was on the list. You can name a school for Dunbar. George Carver was on that list. He's seen as non-threatening, really. Interestingly enough, Dunbar is seen as intellectual. He's an artist. And so he's seen as, you know, you can put Paul Lawrence Dunbar's name on a building because it's aspirational. This is the intellectual development. It's also coming along around the same times as the eugenics movement and Talented Tim. So you're cultivating this higher class of Negroes. Paul Dunbar represents a higher class of poet. He got the black stuff. He got the white sounding stuff. I mean, you know, it's kind of thing. Uh, Phyllis Wheatley was a name. There's still a Phyllis Wheatley school in, in Houston. Phyllis Wheatley, the poet, she's considered okay. Eventually, you'll see a Harriet Tubman or two, usually in the segregated schools. Primary, I mean, even, you know, they, they didn't pass as muster as, quite, as quickly as a Dunbar, as a Carver, as a Phyllis Wheatley. But at any rate, now I'm thinking about all the all the Carver high schools, uh, Chattanooga. Anyway, my man, uh, Dean, who was one of the, in fact, the, the the senior arranger for the Tennessee State Marching Band, the aristocratic bands. Dean came out of Carver, if memory serves me correctly. Deb Heard will correct me if I'm wrong. But at any rate, somebody put their hand up, said that the car. We had a George Washington Carver Middle School, formerly junior high school, in Richmond, Virginia. But they recently changed the name. What did they change it to? Barack Obama. It's a hundred million schools in Richmond, 
Virginia. I thought LeVar Stoney, wasn't, a, wasn't, wasn't there a Negro mayor? I know he was helping Ralph Northam and them try to kneecap my friend Justin Fairfax. But anyway, there was a Negro mayor at May. They've had several Negro mayors. How in the hell? Y'all got, how many schools y'all got at Richmond? You pick one name for a black person and switch the name to Barack Obama. You pick George Carver and change it to Barack Obama. Are there no white races still? I'm sure there's still some Stonewall Jacksons and Robert E. Lee's. <laughs> I'm, I'm, but anyway, all right, that was the footnote. Back to the point. Ms. Morrison represents one of those people who gets in the room, in the social structure. And she's not in the room because she lived with a dream of being in the room, but because of a kind of way that the society has had to open up and accommodate our, 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 our presence, she's a safety valve, like it or not. She's not a safety valve because she want to be one, but it, when she's in the room, she's now, what am I going to do in this room? And she writes about that. She gives these talks. That's why I said, you know, little books that she kind of put, this was one of her early books, of, a book of essays, Playing in the Dark, Whiteness and the Literary Imagination. In fact, when I gave the talk in Paris, I based it on some of the things she was saying in here. Because my position as, as a son of, and in the genealogy of the African Senate scholars, many of whom apprenticed me, like a lot of people in this room, Ken Adams, so many others who are in here, you know, it's our responsibility to look for the truth and it's to look through it through lenses we've crafted as African people. Skip Gates says there's 42 million different places, uh, ways to be uh, black. And I'm a, I would go so far and say, Professor Gates, no, that's not true. There are a couple of billion different ways to be black, but that doesn't displace the unity of Africana, which you put on display once they decided they're going to have an AP course in the wake of Breonna Taylor and George Floyd and them, and we was all out in the street, and then AP said, here's our chance, and Stephen got the class through, and then you show up to put yourself at the head of the line, because all of a sudden, it ain't 42 different, a million different ways to be black. It's one way to define blackness and narrate it through a curriculum, and you want to have a say. Well, guess what, bro? I'm not mad at you, because you too are a guy who's in that room. And you're trying to do what you think is best for us. And so I'm not going to debate or argue with you about your intent. I, I can't read your mind, but I know that in that space, some of what's being put down is in spite of you and not because of you. But Ms. Morrison playing in the dark is one of those places where she's talking about how whiteness tried to narrate our notion of blackness and what our responsibility is and what other people's responsibilities are. And then shortly before she made transition, she published this, The Origin of Others. Tanhasi actually wrote the forward to this. Coates, we actually picked this for our freshman seminar before they destroyed the class uh, last year. This was one of the books that we passed, uh, had, and she couldn't come down by then. She was kind of advanced, couldn't get down. But uh, we had our freshmen read this in College of Arts and Sciences. And then finally, The Source of Self-Regard, 2019, posthumously published as, and several people in the uh, chat said, I think, Miguel, you said you, you read this. This is a, a fascinating book because it's really her speeches. A lot of her speech, not all of her speeches, of course, but many of them. It's broken down into three parts. Uh, part one, The Foreigner's Home. Part two, Black Matters. Part three, God's Language, beginning with Jimmy Baldwin's eulogy, J James Baldwin's eulogy. eulogy. Here's what Miss Morrison writes in the title essay, The Source of Self-Regard. In other words, I'm going to put this in the context of, as we kind of wind, beginning to wind to a close here, Remember, this is February, Black History Month. Remember that we started the first Saturday saying we're going to use this AP course as an example of and as an occasion to revisit how we thought about ourselves in curriculum. Beginning with the United States, but bringing in some other places too. In fact, there's a book called History Lessons. Can I see it over there? I've mentioned it several times before, where they look at curriculum in Africa, Caribbean, uh, in the Caribbean, in Central America, other places, 
and how those curricula treat discussing the experience of African people in the United States. Fascinating, fascinating. But at any rate, I said we would use these Saturdays to kind of use that as a, as a frame. And I think that means we're just going to push to next Saturday in terms of some of the things I wanted to talk about today. But, but Ms. Morrison is occupying us, and I think it's very important. And thank you, Prof, for bringing her full into this space. The source of self-regard for Ms. Morrison, as she talks about that, you know, what are the sources of how we know about ourselves as individuals, as communities, as society? Those sources shift through time and space. Paul Dunbar is born in the wake of the Civil War. He's born during Reconstruction. He comes of age in a moment when uh, what Carter Woodson writes in The Miseducation of the Negro, the sequel to slavery, Jim and Jane Crow. Jane Crow, as Polly Murray might say, descend upon Africans in the United States. This is also the time of Dunbar's teenage years and early manhood, early adulthood, the period when the Europeans invade Africa full. Dunbar is just turning into a teenager when the Berlin Conference is held in Berlin. And Leopold and them decide, you know, this is how we're going to negotiate with each other here, our spheres of influence. You know, he, he is just reaching adulthood when the United States invades Cuba, the, the so-called Cuban-Spanish-American War and begins to descend upon Latin America in ways that are, you know, just unspeakable in many ways. Uh, by the way, footnote, uh, while we're here, CARICOM is meeting this uh, this weekend, uh, the 44 nations that are affiliated with it, Lula da Silva was there, but also little Justin Trudeau was there. What the hell is Justin Trudeau doing there? Because Justin Trudeau announced this week that they're going to deploy uh, uh, the, the Canadian Navy to do intelligence and fact-finding and surround Haiti. Why? Because Joe Biden can't figure out how to get to invade Haiti yet. He sent the sister down. She's in the room too. No doubt, well-meaning for African people. Linda Thompson-Greenfield, the UN ambassador, is in the room. We want to do what's best for Haiti. No, you want to do what's best for the United States. You're an agent of the United States. When you are in the room, how much of us can you really represent? But you are, is it better for you to be in the room than somebody else? I don't know. Ask Colin Powell. He shook that chalk. And we was in Afghanistan for 20 years He's at the UN. But anyway, back to the note I was saying. Ms. Morrison in that room asks, what is the source of self-regard? It's going to depend on what generation you're in. For Paul Dunbar, living through Reconstruction into Jim Crow and Jane Crow, his poetry is reflecting trying to project Africana into the world at the same time that he's trying to also give voice to his humanity, so knowing about his life is going to make his poetry hit different, as young people might say, when you reread Dunbar, if you didn't know that about Dunbar. At the same time, he is being elevated into an icon. At the same time, his brilliant wife is suffering and got her own uh, formations, in fact, uh, uh, own relationships, own negotiated friendships, relationships. You read The Diary of Alice Dunbar Nelson. It's been published. It's a volume. The Diary of Alice Dunbar Nelson. She's in D.C. as well. When you um, think about this, the subsequent generation coming into the 1920s and 30s, that's going to be the generation that trains Toni Morrison when she comes to Howard in the 50s. That's going to be the generation of Sterling Brown. That's going to be the generation of Lorenzo Dow Turner. In fact, one of the books, as we're thinking about, the, uh, you know, I always say this, the curriculum, the AP curriculum is not new. It doesn't claim to be new, those who know it well. Oh, man, I thought I had a copy of that somewhere. Y'all know how I am, and I'm looking at the clock. I don't want to go on too much longer. Oh, that's too bad. 
I was looking at that book a minute ago. Well, I say a minute, but it's not a minute now. Oh, that's too bad. And that's too bad because I would have loved to have quoted from this book. It's a book. It's a collection of essays and uh -uh -uh. what do I do with a T. Cromwell? Okay. I tell y'all what, y'all better tell y'all friends next week because next week we can really rip the frame out of it. There's a book that was published, I think, 1931, Atelia Cromwell, Lorenzo Dow Turner, and Eva Marie Dykes. Readings for Negro Authors. I was going to read to y'all part of a speech that Carter Woodson gave in Baltimore, February 10th, 1926, right after he launched Negro History Week, followed by a speech from Allison Davis, who went to Dunbar High School in D.C., Save it for next week because I'm launching the PhD series and Eva Dykes is in it. So, oh, good, excellent, perfect. Then we'll do that because Dyke, Dykes helped curate. They were all teaching at Howard at the time, okay. believe it or not. Actually, that's not true. Dykes may have been in minor teacher college, but but I, but but uh, but I'll tell you why I was going to quote Allison Davis, Dr. Davis. Davis makes this observation. He says every generation has to really extract meaning out of the circumstances it finds itself in, and then. He says something is incredibly striking. He says, you know, when we look back 100 years from now, you're probably going to see that this country will have moved to a communistic standpoint, uh, a communist standpoint, a communistic form of society because the society we live in is unsustainable. He's critiquing capitalism in the 1930s. There's a black man in a book of readings and speeches giving a speech that's included in a book for black school children at segregated institutions. The AP course, now the black critics of, not just black critics, but the critics who are saying you took out Black Lives Matter, you took out queer theory, you took out the social progress stuff. AP, when you read the beginning of the, of the curriculum says, you know, we're basing this on sources so that we don't get involved necessarily in the politics. I'll give you the direct quote in a minute, but it's, it's okay. And I'm saying the politics are always present. You've got Allison Davis saying that in the 1930s. You know, he said in 100 years, and we ain't that far from 100 years, this is going to be maybe a more communalistic society. Communistic is the word he uses. Now, a book I do have right here, remember, I've mentioned this a couple of times, The Negro Two in American History, Merle Epps. Merle Epps says some also some very interesting things about, he says this about Black people. Now, he got some kind of all things about the Merle Epps, by the way, was on the faculty of Tennessee State for many years. He self-published this book. This is the National Publication Company, a black published book. There are several volumes of this textbook. Uh, this is the issue. This is the volume from 1949. He says this, the Negroes of Africa in chapter one, because remember all these curricula start with Africa, even if it's just short. The Negroes of Africa bring to our shores customs and traditions very different from those of Europe. It is therefore our duty to study the effect that these strange practices would have on one strange you see language problematic then we are more able to understand the ways of the negro and in turn all of us can get together this is what he says yet with all this group of rules he's talking about african people before this the votes come up he says one sees the perfect working in africa of a communistic society 1949 just during the cold war in which each for all and all for each was the general rule now, that's a broad brush, and Henry Gates would tell you that there are 150,000 million different ways to be black. But uh, Merle Epps in 1949 is saying, in studying Africa, what I see, even with the flaws in it, because I'm like, Merle Epps, this is 1949. Du Bois was Epps' friend. There's back and forth with Du Bois came to speak at Tennessee A&I. But uh, you haven't read Dr. Du Bois' 1915 book, The Negro, where he is 
more advanced on his understanding of Africa than you are in 1949. I get it though, because you're writing to the point that I'm about to raise. Each generation is trying to negotiate how we're going to make our interests converge with these white people because we got to live here. And so you're trying to prepare black school children to live in a society where they can somehow advance not only as individuals, but for the race. Every HBCU curriculum is blackface whiteness. And the, and the culture that comes into it is in spite of those curriculum frameworks, we've made a lot of progress, but not enough. And it comes because the students are not blackface whites. Many of the faculty are not blackface whites. But the same Paul Lawrence Dunbar that of DC that we talk about in Extol, when you look deeply at the curriculum, what you see is that they're going to you're gonna be frustrated. You're going to see people saying, how do we prepare these black children to move forward quickly in this society? You read Allison Stewart's book, First Class, on the history of Dunbar High School, or even, oh, well, anyway, I'm going to get you deep into that. At, at, at one point, there were 10 times as many black students in DC trying to get in Dunbar as it was when they opened. And so now you got to make a choice. So they open up another high school, black high school, for black people to do vocational education. That's the one named for uh, Islanda Good Robeson's granddaddy, Cardozo, Francis Cardozo. It's a training school. And then they got Armstrong Training School. That's where Woodson worked for a while. And somebody made this point. We were talking about Dunbar uh, last week, a week before. Maybe it was in Nubia said, you know, we talk about Dunbar. But Armstrong was just as good. And I agree. That's why I say everybody put their high school down. Everybody put their teachers in. Everybody raised the names of those educators because often when we extol one school or one type over the other, we unwittingly sometimes reinforce the hierarchies. And as Michael Gomez reminds us in his book, Exchanging Our Country Marks, he says the black elite have stayed afloat with great difficulty in America, but nevertheless, they do not represent black folk to this social structure. So when Henry Gates get arrested in his house, it's not because he's Henry Gates, Harvard professor, it's because he's Henry Gates N-word, not distinguishable from Mumia Abu-Jamal, who reminds him from behind bars that, bruh, I don't know how many millions of black people ways of being black is the same, but to that dude over there, <laughs> as Q-Tip said, uh, shout out Trugoy the Dove made transition from De La Soul last week. Remember in uh, Me, Myself and I, when he said, Q-Tip said, Black is black. <laughs> In other words, I know you got 42 different million ways, but it's one way to die. Choose it. Anyway, Ms. Morrison, in conclusion, in the source of self-regard, after reminding us that every generation to find the source of how we think about ourselves must mine the memory of our people. And that what she's doing is trying to mine the memory of our people, but not just mine the memory of our people. She says this. And by the way, this is in the section called God's Language, and it's followed by a brilliant small speech given called Rememory, where she talks about the technique for doing that. But let me read what, what Ms. Morrison said. She was uh, given a talk. By the way, this speech, she's contrasting beloved, which we talked about becomes an, a kind of a turning point for her, with jazz, a subsequent novel. But she's saying by way, but let, me, I, I, let me just read it. She says, beginning of the speech, she says, I want to talk about two books in a way in which I understand a kind of progression to have taken place in my work, to talk a little bit about Beloved and a little bit about a new novel and to suggest to those to you some of the obstacles that I created for myself in developing those books and perhaps to talk and illustrate by very short examples in the books ways in which I approach the work. I was told by somebody at a very, very large state university, you know that you, meaning me, are taught in 23 separate classes on this campus. Not 23 separate groups of students, but 23 separate different subject matter classes. And I was very flattered by that and very interested in that, but a little bit overwhelmed. Here we go. 
because I thought, well, outside of, say, African-American literature or women's studies or who knows, maybe even English departments and places like that. How could there be 23? Well, some of them were legal studies and some of them were courses in history and some of them courses in politics. Some of them were in psychiatry and all sorts of things. And aside from some obvious things that I could claim about Beloved, it did seem to me that it had become a kind of all-purpose, highly serviceable source for some discourse in various disciplines and various genres and various fields. At this moment, for these last couple of minutes, we've gone back into the university. But the larger point is this. When you become one of those Negroes, they platform. And by Negroes, I'm not being pejorative here because I'm saying the way the social structure with one of those blacks, whether it be Rihanna, Jay-Z, Cheryl Lee, Ralph, Tony Morrison, or anybody else, you have now become platformed in the social structure. When Jacob Perez said they got a lot of resources, they got so now we got to have a conversation with these people because what they say is going to be used for or against us by a system that wants to maintain the hierarchy. That's a hell of a responsibility. Ms. Morrison didn't ask for that. Frank Thomas didn't ask for that. Well, maybe he did kind of ask for that, him and Bernard Jordan. August Wilson didn't ask for that. I'm just trying to express myself. You understand, you're trying to express yourself, but we need this expression to serve certain ways. And then she says, I'm going to skip forward, because this same teacher she's talking to, she says, how would you teach Beloved? She said, I can't tell you how to teach Beloved. She said, how would you teach it? And she said, well, it doesn't have cliff notes. And she said, why don't you write some cliff notes? She's not being dismissive, but I could see where she might say it. You know what that teacher did, Prof? And you know what that teacher did, everybody? That teacher then went and got her high school students. These were honor students that Ms. Morrison mentions. Shouldn't have had to be, but probably didn't have to be, but she was teaching. They write their cliff notes. And then they send the notes to Ms. Morrison. And she's reading all these high school students who are writing their interpretations of Beloved. And she's fascinated by it. When you have that kind of influence, do you have a responsibility is the question. Some arts would say no. Many arts would say yes if they're out of our community. Before we end with this, she says, for the purposes of the rest of this talk, I want us to agree that in all of our education, whether it's in institutions or not, in homes or streets or whatever, whether it's scholarly or whether it's experiential, there is a kind of a progression. We move from data to information, to knowledge, to wisdom. And separating one from the other, being able to distinguish among and between them, that is knowing the limitations and danger of exercising one without the others, while respecting each category of intelligence, is generally what serious education is all about. And if we agree that purposeful progression exists, then you will see at once how dispiriting this project of drawing or building or constructing fiction out of history can be, or that it's easy and it's seductive to assume that data is really knowledge or that information is indeed wisdom, or that knowledge can exist without data, and how easy and how effortlessly one can parade and disguise itself as another, and how quickly we can forget that wisdom without knowledge, wisdom without any data, is just a hunch. Knowledge, wisdom, data, you need all three of them. I end with this, with the word Tony Morrison ringing in our ear. As we think about curriculum, the AP curriculum, which doesn't have a textbook, which doesn't have lesson plans. They tell the teachers they can pick whatever textbook they want. That's a lie because, you know, the state going to do that in the school district. They know they said you got to write lesson plans. That's what they're doing now. That's one thing. But when you are in a learning experience, learning environment, this isn't just about sharing information or data. This is about the animating spirituality. It's about the cultural experiences that we share, the ones we don't, that we exchange. And it's about, a, about the slow, accretive, compelling work of grounding, of bringing those bricks, as you say, 
and, and you can't rush that kind of thing. That's what Ms. Morrison is talking about. And every generation has to find that source of their self-regard on their terms. And a great deal of that is remembering what happened before. And we connect with the momentum of memory and it, it should be a little easier, a lot easier, frankly. Mm. Yes, yes, yes. Uh, let me do this before we go out. Um, this, uh, so much to think about. And I'm just sitting here. I need to take a walk and process everything. Uh, and for people in here who are educators, you know, um, I think Dr. Carr is really challenging all of us to reimagine, not to reimagine, to remember yes. what it means to truly educate the next generation and what our responsibility is. Because we have a responsibility and we absolutely can. I think both of us um, have remixed our classes. Yes, we have. I know I definitely have over the last at least two years and I've been three years now with yeah. you completely, you know, reimagine what it should look like to prepare young people for the world that we want to live in. Not the world as it is. That's right. Yeah. That's right. So thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Oh, no, thank you. Thank you. I'm looking forward to uh to the conversations we're gonna have going forward. Oh, Monday night, we are in framing question five. How do Africans make sense of and participate in international developments? Uh, the readings are posted there. I'm looking forward to it. We, you know, I don't know how many thousands we had Monday night, but I tell you what. Um, and you talking with Dan on Monday, huh? Yes. Yes. Black on black. Black on black, baby. Black on black. Yeah. Black, baby. But, but more than that, you know, for, for me, it's all about the discovery. You know, having Wes Moore, was, it was like, let me see if if he's real. You know, like, so I'm going to pick around that. Let me, let me see how much politician is in him, you know, how much the, of that, that, uh, you know, phoniness to get to the next place. Is this a stepping stone? You know, and you sit with people, you know, really quickly, okay, Cory Booker, do you love Newark or is this, mm. is this about the people in Newark or is this about you? And mm. when before, it wasn't about him. It was yes. about what he could do to serve the people of Maryland. I was like, I'm, I'm in now. I'm gonna I'm I'm stay vigilant, y'all. We have to. Or keep watching. We have to. We're not gonna deify anybody. We're not gonna put them on a pedestal. We're gonna keep holding them accountable. But I, I left that interview feeling this man really cares about Maryland. He wants to make a difference. Now I don't know if Maryland's gonna wear him out. <laughs> you know if the if the, <laughs> the folk gonna wear him out. Uh, we, you know yeah. the, you know the blind spot I had, the, and I didn't even think about that until now. It ain't gonna wear him out. You know why? He's gonna he's gonna move a few miles south. I was thinking about Hakeem uh, Jeffries and completely blanked. Nah, this is the dude. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? This is like this is like the factory reset on the cat who we thought was that dude. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I mean, I don't know. We'll see. Hey, I'm, I'm gonna say less because we won't jinx it. Yes, no. <laughs> yeah, we're gonna say less. Uh love you immensely, love you, sir. Baby. And uh Nubians as well. Everyone have a safe weekend. I can't wait for class on Monday with yeah, you. Thanks, y'all. Uh, I see y'all filling up the chat with the teachers and the are you gonna put Miss Morrison on? Yep. I'm gonna do that. Yep. Love you. Love you. How black people are perceived elsewhere. Right. Um, it's about what will they think of us if we baby or see. That is such a censorship, such a self-censorship that I just couldn't deal with it instantly. And I always knew that I was not gonna write keep your best foot forward kind of fake fiction.
I felt it was too important. I knew I could not uh, dupe black readers. I thought they would catch me out if I faked it. On the other hand, when they thought about them reading it, they would be perhaps embarrassed or, you know, wonder. Early on in my career, I remember a young woman in California respond. This is what the, before I'd written the second book. She, I'd only written The Bluest Eye. And she said, I liked your book very much. And uh, I really love you for writing it. And I also really hate you for writing it because I didn't want them to know. So it was, a, it was like a public relations effort and always being sort of under the white gaze. And that gaze was so debilitating, so hurtful, so it fructified everything. You just, you know, it was either excessive um, superstardom or something else. It was just a burden. So I determined to write outside that gaze and that there would be no, you know, um, token white vision in the book at all. And also I had always felt in some of the writers who are African-American that I liked a lot, that there was always this voice that was not talking to me. It was talking to somebody else over my shoulder. So they were writing for whites. In many instances, they were explaining things to people. Uh, they didn't have to explain it to me. You know what I mean? There was, I don't mean completely, and I certainly don't mean totally, but I think it's because, not because I'm a writer or even a reader, because I'm an editor, and I can feel that voice when it's being addressed outside rather than within. And that gave it a kind of awkwardness because you can't, I mean, I suppose it exists in other cultures, but you know, you don't feel that you know, maybe some Russian writers are writing for the French. Maybe some French people are writing for the English. You know what I'm trying to say? But when is that, what does that got to do with it? So I just determined to stake my claim right there and not at all respond to this overwhelming perception of a non-Black or a white gaze that was going to judge respond to and evaluate everything that I wrote.